all life really boils down to for humans are the relationships you have with the people you love and the things you do that matter to uh, other people. That's Tucker Max this week on the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How you guys doing? It's Rich here, Rich Roll, your host, and thank you for tuning in. So on this show, I have the great privilege of sitting down with some pretty amazing people, some of the best, most pioneering, paradigm-breaking minds and personalities across all categories, everything from health and wellness to fitness to medicine, nutrition, spirituality, psychology, and in the case of today's guest, relationships, publishing, and technology. And the big idea behind all of this really is to leverage the insights provoked by these conversations and these thought leaders to really help you just live better, to be better, to help all of us unlock and unleash our collective best, most authentic selves. So thank you for subscribing to the show. I appreciate it. I appreciate you spreading the word on social media. And of course, for always clicking through the Amazon banner ad at ritual.com for all your Amazon purchases. It's a great free way to support the mission, and thank you so much to everybody who has made a habit of this. It's so awesome. If you have not yet done so, why don't you go ahead, bookmark the link from the banner ad on my site, why don't you, and make it easy. It's a win-win for all of us. Okay, listen up, you guys. As you know, advertisers support the show, and they keep it free for you. So... We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care especially because, unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you, I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof, 
with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadenay. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. All right, so where to begin? Uh, we're switching gears a little bit today. We're going to uh, venture into some uncharted territory, uncharted waters. I think it's fair to say we're going out on a bit of a limb, I suppose. Uh, so look, when the opportunity arose to have Tucker Max on the show, I got to admit, uh, I got a little uncomfortable. I had a little bit of trepidation. On the one hand, I was super honored that he had an interest in doing the, doing the show. That's super cool. But at the same time, on the flip side of that, I also wasn't convinced that he was really the right fit for what I do, what I speak to, and kind of what I stand for and what I'm trying to accomplish through this show. I mean, look, certainly he's super bright. He's incredibly accomplished. He's got millions of fans. I mean, this is a guy who was nominated to Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential List in 2009. His first book, I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell, was a number one New York Times bestseller. It spent five years on the list. It sold over two million copies. And his second and third books were also New York Times bestsellers. And he is only the third writer, along with Malcolm Gladwell and Michael Lewis, to ever have three books on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list at the same time. I mean, that's insane. Just think about that for a minute. So what am I saying? Well, certainly he is a publishing juggernaut. And no matter what your opinion is of his books, you have to admit that that is pretty astonishing. But it's these books combined with Tucker's public persona. You know, he's kind of known as America's foremost, quote unquote, bro, you know, a guy kind of known for his big ego, his braggadocio, his brash chronicling of his partying exploits. Well, all of that really gave me pause. I mean, do I really want to talk to a guy who wrote a book called Assholes Finish First? I mean, that's just not my scene, man. I mean, it doesn't really fit with what I'm about. I mean, frankly, I'm just not, I'm not interested in that guy. I don't support those ideas. It's just, it's not me. But I'll tell you this. What is interesting and why I ultimately decided to go forward with this interview is that that's not Tucker either, at least not anymore. I'm not sure it ever really was. The Tucker Max of today really just isn't the same hard-drinking, hard-partying, womanizing Tucker Max that made him famous and made him, you know, really rich. And in the wake of his pretty staggering success, this is a guy who woke up to realize that all of the gifts of that success, all of those externalities really just weren't making him happy. So what do you do when that happens? What do you do when you've achieved your dream and you're in that destination point and it's not meeting your expectations? You're not feeling fulfilled. Well, ego has to submit to introspection, to self-reflection. And that's what Tucker did. He really started to do the internal work. He underwent analysis. In short, he grew up. And the Tucker that has emerged from that former guy is a much more self-actualized person. He got married. He has a baby. And he retired not from writing, but from the fratire genre that he basically created and that whole lifestyle that surrounds all of that. So here's the deal. If this podcast is about anything, it's about 
transformation, our internal innate potential for transformation, how we navigate and overcome the obstacles that are placed in front of that transformative process. It's about owning your truth. It's about your story. It's about evolving, maturing, and letting go of the things that no longer serve you, moving past old habits and patterns. It's about growth. And I really wanted to explore that arc with Tucker. I wanted to know why he decided to change, what prompted it, and how he did it, how he looks back on that former guy, what he's interested in now, and really, you know, what can be mined from his experience that can be a benefit for all of us. And I got to say, in all honesty, uh, I really ended up enjoying the conversation tremendously. We had a really good time. Uh, I think it came off really, really well. And look, Tucker's still Tucker. Don't get me wrong. I mean, this guy is sharp. He's ribald. He's very self-assured. He's highly opinionated. He's completely un unapologetic. But he's also surprisingly reflective and introspective about his life and his background. So I'm excited to share it with you today. Uh, a quick note. There are a few instances of explicit language. I just wanted to point that out and as well as a couple off-color stories. But hey, look, what are you going to do? It's Tucker Max, right? I mean, it, it just comes with the package. So it is what it is. All right, you guys. Are you ready? All right. Here goes nothing. What are you, uh, what are you doing in L.A.? So I'm out here. Um, we've got a meeting tonight. In fact, like I'm leaving here whenever I leave, and we're going to um, we're going to pick up an investor for not investor, uh, an angel. I think our final mm -hmm. not angel uh, advisor. Sorry, dude. I, like I've been like talking all day long, and now all my words are flowing together. Yeah, you, um, don't have, you shouldn't be raising money for no, no. no. We're not raising at all. No, 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 no. But uh, we may raise eventually if we turn it into like a, a SaaS platform. If we can do this as software mm -hmm. as a service and and make it super cheap. Like the reason to do a software as a service is if we can do this really cheap for people. And so uh, uh, if we do that, we're probably gonna have to raise money. So we're bringing on some advisors now, not necessarily to raise, but just people to help us build the company, help us connect us to a lot of people, whatever. So one of the main guys, one of the big, big angels uh, in, in America is actually in LA. Mm -hmm. And um, he... Um he wants to, uh, to to come on as advisor first because he wants to put money in. But mm -hmm. so, uh, so we're meeting with him and his team today, and then we're gonna like talk about like advisor terms stuff like that. And then um, we're probably gonna write out sort of like set up uh, uh, terms for a raise. But then it'll be up to us whether we ever trigger it. You know, right, right, right. Um, uh, but you know, stuff like does he get to lead the round? What what allocation of the round? Stuff like that. So that right. was the reason we came out to L.A. and then. You know how it is. Like LA is the type of city. Like we, you can always take ten, twenty meetings, and so we mm. stacked everything together, and then it's like just blow it out. Yeah, before mm -hmm. you go back home. Yep, yeah, that's exactly. Cool. I mean, it's actually hard to do more than like one or two meetings a day in LA, <laughs> as opposed to like New Dude. York. New York, you can get so much done. No, but here it's like you can do it in LA. <laughs> I, I lived in LA for organized. two years. You gotta like, uh, well, see, look what I did. Like you came, I had lunch right next door, right, right. and then uh, so I, the first meeting we had two meetings uh, in Beverly Hills, two. Uh, breakfast and then coffee and then came here five minutes away and then uh the angels in venice beach so uh -huh. like we'll and it's like not till six it's like way far away right 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 
So we've got like the hour and a half traffic built in. You, if you do it, it's almost like logistics, like a UPS puzzle. Right. Like if you put the meetings in the right sequence at the right times, uh-huh. you can totally take three, four, five in a day in LA. But if you just do it randomly, you're totally screwed. But if you're going from like Burbank to Venice to Beverly Hills, like forget it. You're just no way. Yeah, it's, it's not, not yeah, going to do so. it. Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad we can make this work. And I want to get into booking a box and all that kind of stuff. But um, <clears throat> one of the one of the ways I thought would be cool to kick it off is, you know, we're in Century City. We're sitting in a hotel room. Right. And it's impossible for me to to be in Century City and not reflect back on my career as a lawyer and like my <laughs> law school experience because I worked right next door in the Die Hard building yep. in the Nakatomi Plaza. Yeah, Nakatomi Plaza. As an associate in a law firm for many years. So although I rarely come to Century City these days, like I used to come here every single Is day. Is it like bad it flashbacks like, and stuff? A little bit. Yeah. You know, like... Uh, yeah, like a certain every once in a while I hear a voice that sounds remarkably similar to like a partner that I used to work for and I'll just I'll have this like yeah. fight or flight like reaction totally. and I'm like I have post traumatic stress yes. disorder 100% experience 100% it's crazy that like this this many years after it I still like live with that but you didn't like did you go and work in a law firm mm-hmm. after law school I was school? straight up fired Oh, were you? Where? Yeah. Where? where Fenwick and West. It's oh, a were. big Silicon uh-huh. Valley firm. Uh-huh. I was, I, yeah, like uh, I wasn't there long enough to get PTSD. I got fired <laughs> after three weeks. <laughs> three weeks? Three weeks, dude. Yeah, because I've never three seen weeks. anything about your career as a lawyer. Three I mean, weeks. I know you went to law school, but uh, yeah, well, what did the, you do to, per, to. So the the stories in my first book, basically what happened was uh, there were two things. So uh, I was actually, here's what's funny. I didn't get fired. You're a lawyer, so you'll understand the difference. I didn't get fired from uh, a job. I got fired as a summer associate. That's really hard. <laughs> Your only job is to have a good time and like go to ball games and like go to happy hour. But there's a limit on the type of good times you can have. Like just not showing up. No, no. I showed up. I did. I did actually did great work. The partners working with me thought I was like, oh, this dude's really smart. He's great. There were two big problems. Um, One was. One of the senior female partners, not associates, partners in the firm, propositioned me, right? And like, because I was like the fun, drunk, uh, like party summer, right? And there was like this one uh, uh, partner, female partner, who was a total cougar, and uh, she was all over me. And I, I, to this day, I don't know why I turned her down, and I have no idea why, because I've slept with women who are far uglier than her and far older, and I don't know what I was thinking, <laughs> yeah. especially because I was like 25 at the time, right? So it was basically just a big walking like penis. And um, I, I turned her down, and then here's what here's the best part. I turned her down and then I told everyone in the firm about it. Uh, yeah, that was not a smart that political dude, move. Dude, I did the literal worst thing. I could have slept with her and then I was bulletproof, or I could have turned her down and shut up, right? Mm-hmm. But instead I did the Trump worst option possible. three, option C. <laughs> option three, get fired. So then they just how did that go? Just uh, that went down on like here. a like a Monday or Tuesday night. The next weekend we went to um, this winery for like the the firm retreat, and they yeah, they, they brought the summers obviously, and I got hammered at this thing. And uh, there was like a charity auction for like the firm. And it was things like, you know, the managing partner makes you dinner or whatever. And I went up on stage and I took the mic from the auctioneer because I was like trying to bid on this one thing. And and someone was outbidding me. So I took the mic from the auctioneer. I started cursing at them and like making them stop bidding. It was like, it was one of those things where it was started off really funny and then it got like unfunny. Really ugly quickly. (laughs) And so. Well, you didn't give them much choice. No, I didn't. But you were still in law school then, right? So. 
but, yeah. so after you graduated though, the, the, no, no, they fired me. And then here's what's crazy. I wrote an email. I got fired the next Wednesday. That Monday, I wrote an email about it to my friends, sent it to them. I get fired. Of course, my friends are dicks. So they, they forward the email to all their friends at all the different uh, law firms they're mm-hmm. summering at, right? And so it blows up. It, I mean, this is, you know, 2000. This is email, even though MySpace doesn't exist, email's fully mm-hmm. like in existence. And the email goes everywhere. And you know how small law firms are, right, like right. in the legal community. So uh, I can't even interview when I get back to Duke. Okay, like I'm totally scarlet letter. I'm now. the dude who got fired after three weeks right. for getting job, drunk. Job prospects yeah. are over for you yep. before you even graduated. Exactly. So then when you graduated, what, what were you thinking you were going to do? Um, I went to work for my dad. He uh-huh. owns uh, restaurants in South Florida. Right. And then my dad fired me. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I've heard that story. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things that you wrote that really spoke to me was that article, uh, I think it was originally in Huffington Post about why you shouldn't go to law school. Because I've often thought, like, <clears throat> you know, I'd really like to put together, like, a keynote and just travel to all the law schools and just break down exactly what the practice of law do it actually undergrad, entails, catch them before they go. And and explain to them that, you know, just to disabuse them of this yes. myth or, it, and I think the thing is, and, and one of the things you pointed out in that article is uh, you, you sort of dispel all these ideas about what the practice of law, you know, what you kind of conjure it up to be in your mind versus what it really is. Um, and all the reasons why you can kind of, you know, trick yourself into thinking it's a good idea when maybe it's not. And then you sort of say, I knew all this stuff and I still went. And I made this mistake, and I'm trying to help you, you know, from making the mistake that I did. Um, and I knew all those things too, and I made it. And I think there's something I don't know if it's inherent to the law student or in general, or just young people. But you think that your experience is going to be different. Of course, you know, you know all that stuff, and you're like, but that's not going to be me. Oh, I said that. I'm like, you oh, know? I'm better than all those people. And you go yeah. on these, you get these cushy jobs at these law firms as a summer associate, where they pay you really well, yeah. and they don't overwork you, and they entertain you, and wine and dine you, and you do all this fun stuff, and then you're like, yeah, it's not so bad. Right. You know, I'll do it's this. Not the worst. Just, I'm just going to pay off my law school loans, and yeah. then I'll go do what I'm going to do. Uh-huh. That's and how then they you suck you up, in, like drugs. And then you get sucked in and then you're there and you've got a pile of debt and you're miserable. And to compensate for being miserable, you start spending your money, right? You start leasing a car maybe you can't afford. You get an apartment that's a little bit above uh-huh. your pay grade. And then you're stuck, man. Because that just that just you have the golden handcuffs. Yeah, and I've seen it so many times with so many people. And then they just resign their life to it and they say, Well, maybe next time. And they try and rationalize it. A lot of rationalizations. Sort of and then when you mm-hmm. leave, like I remember when I finally was like, I just can't I mean, I was so burned out that I can remember sitting at my desk and all I had to do was like type a confirming letter. Like the deposition will be at, at this place at this time. And I was uh, like, I can't do it. I, uh, could, I could not make my fingers type. And I was like, done. And, yep. and when I decided to leave, the reaction of the other associates is pretty interesting because they're not necessarily so supportive. Because no. if you can break free, that's very threatening. It, it's a mirror that shines on their inability yeah, to. Yeah, and so that's frightening for them mm-hmm. because if somebody can do it, that means they can too. And, and there's a lot of fear that comes up with yeah. that. And then they have to face the fact matter. that they don't. Right. They can and they don't because you did it. And if they don't, they have to face the fact that they're being cowards or they're whatever, whatever yeah. their problem is. And I mean, it's not even... It's almost not even fair to say cowardice because 
if, if I think a lot of people probably enter into that world in a way that's probably similar to the way that I did in the sense that my whole life was premised upon, you know, academic achievement and like, you know, that, mm-hmm. that sort of myth of the American dream that you're chasing yep. and sort of social acceptability and security and all these sorts of things, right? So you're not really, I never was thought to really think critically or out of the box about my life. Yeah, and this no. just seemed like a good thing to do. And not because I had any kind of inherent passion for it, but just because it's respectable, right? And so when you're faced with the prospect of leaving, that's like, ter- that, that was the scariest thing I ever did in my life to this day, mm-hmm. like that day. Cause when I walked out, I didn't have another job. I, it wasn't like I knew what I was gonna be doing. I had no idea. That takes All courage, I knew was that, though. Right, right, right. But I think to say to somebody else, like the fact that they don't do it is cowardly. I think it's just, that's, that's how they were raised. You know what I mean? Yeah, so it's frightening. It's frightening for sure. Yeah. It is. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but I think that would be like actually fun to go around and actually talk to kids. And like, oh, this is what the real deal is. Dude, I get emails I all mean, the time from people who are like, I either, either one side or the other. I read it. I knew you were right. I still went, oh, God, why didn't I listen? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'll, all them I write back, I say, quit. It's not too late. Then some do, some don't. And then others who are like, oh, my God, thank you so much. Because of your piece, or partly because of it, I didn't go to law school. I'm so happy now, and I see people who did, and I, that would have been me. Yeah. Like, I, like I, I don't know how much you pay attention to law schools now, but you notice the last two years, I think applications have gone down like 70%, oh, or some crazy oh, number. That. That's pretty interesting. They've bottomed out. Like, they're, they're below, like, even what they were in the, like, the early 80s, right before LA Law came on and it mm-hmm. created the big spike. Right. They're back below that now. Law schools are going out of business. It's amazing. Well, we're entering, you know, what James Altucher would call the choose yourself era. You know, it's an independent contractor world and and young people are not interested in that like sort of traditional career track. Mm -hmm. They're, they're, you know, the millennial mindset, the the millennial psyche is, you know, I want to chase my passion and Mm -hmm. that gets branded and sort of unfairly characterized as selfish or self-seeking. I think, but I think, I think there's something really golden and beautiful about that to the extent that somebody can find a way to support themselves, even if it's project to project by doing something that they enjoy, like that's something to celebrate. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And in my case, like it was even worse than that because I was a paralegal in New York City for Skadden Arps for two years before I went to law school. Wow, that's the belly of the beast. went, and this was like 1989, 90, 91. That's the real belly of the beast, Big times M&A era and all that kind of stuff. And it was insane when I was there. And I was the world's worst paralegal (laughs) because all I wanted to do was party. And I was making no money. And so I hung out with these guys that we called ourselves like the kings of the low budget social scene. So we always right. knew where the free beer was yeah. and we get free food. And because we had, we literally like had to make an awesome night out of like 10 bucks. Or, <laughs> and that's all we could afford, you know? <laughs> and, and the day to day grind of being in that environment and watching those lawyers like suffer, you uh. know, was horrible. And I was terrible at it and I didn't care. And I still went to law school. That's how deeply ingrained that programming was. You know what I mean? You know what's funny? I know a lot of paralegals say that. Yeah. Like, you're not alone. It's not like, oh, what what a crazy person. A ton of people in law school are paralegals. It's almost like, um, it's almost, it's almost like, I think it's the idea that, like, if I, fuck it, if I'm going to take the abuse, I might as well get paid, Mm -hmm. like, unconsciously, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I I don't know why, but yeah, you would think that would be an, an, like, an antidote, but it acts almost like as an inoculation. Mm -hmm. And so you, you almost, forget that there's a way to be a human. Right. Like you don't have to 
suffer through that. Yeah, and I think, you know, that system breeds like really good followers, you know, people that are really smart mm -hmm. and diligent and know how to work hard, but the greatest lawyers are not those people. The greatest Never. lawyers are the free thinkers. Those aren't who, the name partners. Yeah, the people that are the rainmakers don't really play by those. Joe rules. Flom wasn't playing by the yeah, rules. That's exactly right. Huh? That's exactly right. So, anyway, so many kind of um inflection points that we can talk about, but um, you know, I think there's there's the thing that I want to talk about with you the most, I think, and, and kind of what this podcast really focuses on is, you know, personal growth and, and transformation. Mm -hmm. and, and obviously, you know, you have sort of this, you know, reputation out in the world for being, you know, the, the, the sort of creator or proponent of the frat tire genre. And you right. sold a bazillion books. I think it's, what is it, like over three million yeah. now. It's mm -hmm. crazy, right? Yeah. Um, and then you reach this point where you're like, I'm not doing that anymore. And you know, for lack of a better phrase, like you're growing up, right? right. You're, are you married yet or you're engaged, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So you're married now? Yeah. Uh -huh, and you've got a nine-month-old yep, son. Yep, nine-month-old son, bishop. So you're an adult. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Totally full adult now. <laughs> and with that, uh -huh. there's a very interesting arc. And in kind of, um, you know, looking into your story a little bit more deeply and poking around the internet, you know, look, there's no shortage of articles that kind of adhere to the typical, you know, narrative that you would expect. But the one piece that I thought was the most informative and, and kind of revealing was Michael Ellsworth's piece in, in Forbes. And yeah. that guy's an amazing writer and I read a lot of the stuff that he does. And, mm -hmm. you know, he's very insightful. And that was the only thing that, that I felt like really did you the service of, you know, breaking down what it was that kind of, you know, got you to that place of deciding that this was going to be part of your past and that you were kind of embarking into, you know, a new, you know, a new version of yourself, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and so, so I want to kind of break down that that process because I think you know really what it what it in a nutshell for me what it entailed was you know really looking at yourself and and being honest with yourself about you know what led to some of those behaviors that created you know the books that were so successful and and taking stock and evaluation and inventory of you know what was making you happy and what wasn't making you happy and I think you know as young guys right we're sort of Bred maybe inherently or maybe socially to believe that you know if you have a fast car and you're you, you got tons of girls and you got money great. in the bank that you're going to be happy. That's and, what and you want. You are a success story. You could not have been more successful as a writer. You had more than enough money and tons of girls around and all the trappings of you know what Madison Avenue would tell you is is the recipe for being a fulfilled human being. Mm -hmm. And you know where did that land you? Yeah, no, it's it's funny. Like you nailed it because you probably went through your own version of the same thing. Yeah. Like I, it, for me, it was more like um, it was unusual. I, a lot of the times, the narrative is like you hit rock bottom, right? I didn't ever hit rock. There was no rock bottom for me. It was you. You're exactly right. My sort of uh, rock bottom was not one moment. I think it was a series of, of sort of events. And it was like, here I was. I had uh, sold millions of books. I had millions of dollars. I, had, I didn't have enough time to sleep with all the women who wanted to sleep with me. Uh, I could do anything I wanted, whatever. And uh, I remember when I started thinking, okay, if I just had X, I'd be happy. And X was, X was minus a thousand what I had. Right. Right. Uh, and then, so here I am with a thousand X, what I need, what I thought I needed to be successful and happy. And I liked it. It was better than being poor. Make no mistake about it. It was better than where I came from, but I wasn't like, I wasn't happy. It wasn't satisfying. Mm -hmm. And so like, I, I kind of went through this stage where I was like, okay, I just need to get healthy. I'm not eating right, whatever. So then 
totally like got off grains and sugar and you know whatever eat ancestral and and all that stuff felt great started you know doing MMA and jujitsu and like uh, amazing shape and like that was great but it's like okay um you know, uh, there were other things I fixed, a lot of other sort of external things. And I fixed everything that mm. could be fixed to the point where I had this totally perfect, not empty, but just unfulfilling life. Right. And so it was like, okay, listen, at some point, dude, you got to turn around and look at yourself because if it's not, if it's nothing external, it has to be internal. And then that was, it wasn't one time, man. It was, I wish I could be like, oh, it was this moment and this happened and the magic pill saved me. It was just more like, man, I've got to, I've got to look at myself and I've got to look at what I'm doing. And I got to maybe think about the fact that maybe all the ideas or a huge set of them are wrong in my head. Yeah. I mean, to camp out here for a second, I mean, you know, in my case, you know, I had to get sober. Like my partying wasn't nearly as ribald as yours, right. but like, you know, my alcoholism definitely, you know, escalated right. beyond what you experienced. And I was sort of, you know, faced with a moment of reckoning on that that compelled me to either, right. you know, that was going to kill me or, or save me. Right. Um, but I think, you know, in most people's situations, you know, it, it's very convenient if you have that rock bottom moment and the skies part and, you know, the angels descend right. and, and you're struck, you know, either sober or with some sort of epiphany about your life. Right. I don't think that that is the normal experience. And I see it in sobriety all the time. Like people have varying degrees of bottoms, you know, sometimes it's horrible, right? But other times it's just like, you know what? I was, I was just done. Like nothing yeah. crazy happened. Like I just knew, you know, I just woke up one day and it wasn't that different than any other day. And I decided I was done. And so what I always say is, you know, if the elevator's going down or the car is driving in the wrong direction, you always have control over right. that trajectory, right? But it's just harder when you're not, you know, in a, in in a when you don't have to make the decision, yeah, yeah, like pain is the ultimate motivator, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. How do you make that decision when you're not in that that amount of pain? It sounds like you were in a little bit of pain. I mean, you were in enough pain to be reflective. You know what it was, dude? I, I was lonely, like in a genuine, like honest way. Uh, I don't mean like I didn't have people. I had great friends and I had a lot of girls, but I was. It's hard for me. I think I'm still uh, coming to terms with the uh, the true depth of what and where I was. But I think it was just basically I was really lonely. Like mm -hmm. I realized like um, most of what I had. It's not that it was bad. It was just, you know, it's like fast food tastes really good, mm -hmm. but doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't get you where you want to go. Right. And I kind of had, I think... I'll, uh, that was sort of my life, you know. Like I was proud of a lot of things I'd done, but it was like, where was I? What was I? What was I doing? I always say now um, to people like the things that matter in life. All, all life really boils down to for humans are the relationships you have with the people you love and the things you do that matter to uh, other people, mm -hmm. right? And so at that point, I'd written books that millions of people had loved and laughed at and helped. Uh, you know, entertainment. I mean, it, it wasn't like, you know, some uh, earth-moving thing, but it was it was entertaining. And that was about it, you know? And and I, to, to me, it was like, man, I can do a lot of amazing shit, and all I've done is made people laugh. And there's nothing wrong with making people laugh. Louis C.K. makes the world a much better place, but it's like... Mm, you know, my stuff was like, okay, fine. But, uh, and then on the other hand, like I, I didn't have, I had good friends, but it's like, I feel like so much around me, I got stuck in that celebrity trap where so much of it, uh, wasn't real, mm -hmm. you know? And it was like, so much of it was predicated on what I meant to people in their life, not 
what our relationship was, you know? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, like I, I'm helping Tucker with his movie or on the whatever. And it's like not bad people, but just like these aren't real relationships. Right. You know? I mean, you know, I've lived in Los Angeles for a long time. And, you know, I yeah. can tell you for a fact that, you know, I've had direct experiences with a lot of people who are enormously successful and wealthy and some of the most miserable miserable people I've ever met. And, mm-hmm. and people that don't treat other people very well, mm-hmm. you know, and they're unhappy. And and, you know, it's always the next thing that's gonna make them happy. Right. It's getting the next movie set up or, you know, I'm gonna trade in the Tesla for a Ferrari right. or whatever. And that'll- is, That'll make it better. <laughs> chase that to your grave, yes. you know, whether it's the next yes. heroin fix or yes. the next mansion, it does not matter. And I've got a buddy right now. He's a really handsome, successful guy. And he's recently, he's going through a divorce and he's, and he's going nuts with girls, like crazy, yeah. uh-huh. crazy, you know, just going bananas. Right. And he just finally like hit his, hit the wall with it. And he's like, it does not work. It no. does not. It does not work. It's not working. You it's will, not working. It's an inside job. It's nope. an inside job. Like this is not making me happy. Nothing in that vagina is going to solve your problems. Mm-hmm. If it feels good, sex is great. Women are amazing, but having sex with lots of them doesn't. It doesn't. It, in the most starkly honest, raw way, it. You can't uh, bury your pain in a in a pussy. You know, mm-hmm. like you can't. You can't get rid of your loneliness by filling your, you know, by you know, filling your life with women, lots of different women. It just doesn't. It's not. I, I don't mean it like in a bad way. I, in in a weird way, I I wouldn't take back what I went through. I love. I had a lot of good times, right? But it's like um, I'm one of those people who's got to learn the hard way, you know. Mm-hmm. And my hard way was hard, but it was also fun. But yeah, like I don't. It's I, I have a wife now. I sleep with one woman, and it's like it's actually. Um, uh, it's weirdly way more satisfactory and fulfilling in almost every single way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, listen, let's not. There's, there's, there's always going to be appeal to that's a pretty woman. I really like to hook up with her, but like other than that sort of like normal animalistic sort of novelty type situation, almost everything is better about having real connections with amazing people and. Um, having real relationships. I don't know any other way to put it, you know? Certainly, you know, for a fact. I feel like, you know, I listen to a couple interviews with you and and there always seems to be um, this sort of implicit desire in the interviewer for you to um, distance yourself from the things that you've done in your past yeah. through your twenties, and, they always want and, me to and repent. have you kind of say, "I'm ashamed of this." Yes, you know, they and, always want me to repent. They're, they're, they're wanting you to do that, and you're and, and you're always very clear that you own it and, mm-hmm. and that you don't regret it. And I think, you know, it's easy to to criticize you for that, but I think that that growth requires you to own your past and and to get to a place where you know you can just accept it and and you know hold it out to the world without repercussion and 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 just say this is who I am you know and in order to grow I think you have to do that because if you are ashamed of it or you have that means you have unresolved issues within yourself about it and I think that that is a impediment to kind of getting to the next level I dude I could not agree more I um I always have this saying, like, uh, like um, I wasn't deformed. I don't need to reform. I just went through sort of a phase, and it was – I was an incomplete person, but the way you become complete is you figure that out, you know? Uh, just like I played with G.I. Joes when I was 10. 
I didn't do that when I was 20. It doesn't mean what I did when I was 10 was wrong. It was a phase. It's, it's how you get to, you know, how you get to good human relations and object relations is you start with dolls, right? Same thing. And people, a lot of people don't get that. There's, I think, because there's a lot of, there's a narrative in our culture that it's not okay to do certain things. And it's not okay to then, like, not, to not repent. Like, you have to, like, I mean, I, this might be way off base or, or way, a very different discussion, but like uh, I think this falls into line with the, like the medicalization of addiction and disease. Like addiction is just not a disease. Addiction is terrible <laughs> in so many ways, uh-huh. but it's not. There's just it, it's not. You don't catch alcoholism. It doesn't happen that way. Like you, uh, lots of problems, uh, l- lots of issues with that. But like um, I just don't. I don't feel like. Um, I just don't feel like I – you know what the idea – I think the idea stems from if addiction is a disease, then you can forgive the addict because it wasn't their fault, right? Mm-hmm. But um, – and I'm not trying to say it, like uh, addiction is a conscious decision every time because I get like – you know, there's dyna- other dynamics at play that make it much more complex. But um, I, I, it's, it, it's okay to say uh, something like, you know what? I drank a lot because – I was sad and lonely and I didn't know what else to do or I liked drinking or whatever and then it became a problem and then I I decided, you know, I needed to solve it and I solved it, you know? And it doesn't have to be a disease. You can just exactly what you said. You can just own your problem and admit that it was a problem and uh and own, you know, even the good parts of it like you were an alcoholic. I bet you still have like uh, that was fun that one time we went out drinking or whatever. You know, it doesn't all have to be terrible. You don't have to like, oh, we got to fit this norm and then we well, have to disown everything about our past. Yeah, I mean, I think you're th- you're talking about two different things in terms of like you know looking back on my drinking career. Like you know in the early days, yeah, I had a lot of fun and actually mm-hmm. it, it it helped socialize me. It brought me out of my you know I was a very insular, like, mm-hmm. you know, kind of isolated kid who was, you know, ha- had difficulty interacting with people and making right. friends. And it, it allowed me to come out of my shell, right. but it also turned on me. I mean, uh-huh. I would I would disagree with you on the disease model. And I think as somebody who is an alcoholic, right. and I'm very involved in the recovery community. Uh-huh. Like I'm around these people all the time. You know, it truly is an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. And, you know, I've been around a long time and, you know, it's still something I have to work on all the time with all the interpersonal work that I've done. Um, and it seems like, you know, every couple of years, somebody will come along with like sort of a new uh, version of how to treat this disease. And I'm not to say <clears throat> that any one way is, a, is better than any other. Right. And whether it's a disease or it isn't, doesn't really interest me. Like I have a way of resolving it for myself, like on a daily basis that right. works and works for my friends. And, you know, I've seen it do amazing things for people and it's not perfect. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't other ways that are valid or worth considering. Right. But, you know, I think that's a whole other podcast that we, yeah. we could do, you know what I mean? But I think that, you know, I think for me, you know, if I if all I did was start eating really well and, and, and you know, training my body and, and maybe go see a shrink, I don't know that that would resolve my alcohol problem. You know, right. I, Dude, I don't know either. Right, right, yeah, right. yeah, so... But anyway, we're. Uh, well, what do you? Um, let me let me ask you. So, because uh, obviously, like I'm, I, I'm not a fucking addiction expert, right? I just whatever. Um, see things, read things, interact with people. There's a lot of sort of thought in this area that addiction is actually a problem of human connection and not really. It's not a disease model, meaning like um, 
you know what I mean. We don't have to go deep into that. But there's a lot of research now and a lot of people who are like, look, addiction is primarily uh, – and there's a lot of evidence that I think points to this. It might be right, it might not, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to like argue this position. But what do you think about that idea that that addiction is primarily uh, – a, a problem of disconnection from other people and that whether it's gambling or sex or alcohol or heroin, whatever, is a way of sort of absol- resolving that pain or sort of filling that lack of connection. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, of course. There's wisdom in that for sure. I don't know that I would say that it's predominantly a function of that, but I think that part of the solution is creating you know greater and deeper interpersonal emotional connection with other people. And, you know, part of the thing that kind of goes on here when, when you know, sort of experts, you know, suddenly come to the forefront and are offering different ideas about, you know, what this is and how to treat it is that, um, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous is anonymous at the level of press, radio, and film. Right. So they're, by, by very definition, built into the essence of what this is, they're really not allowed to respond. Right. You know, and that's part of the fabric of why it's been able to, you know, exist and grow for so many years because of its sort of depoliticization de-politi- depoliticization right. of it, right? Mm-hmm. So so there's never a counterpoint to that. So I think that the dialogue becomes a little bit one-sided, but I think for me, you know, a big part of the solution is being connected to other people that, you know, share right. share the affliction that 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 I have and working through those issues or things that come up together is a fundamental aspect of getting I mean, better. that's most of the data shows like AA for the most part everything you do in AA is totally worthless except for <laughs> no, except for the the, the group, the people, mm-hmm. like like the except a higher being, whatever. Like if you look at like from my understanding, again, I'm not like the expert, but like so much of it is like you could take this out and it wouldn't statistically affect outcomes. But the one thing that that I think over and over has major statistical effects on outcome, like big ones. In fact, the biggest one is uh, the group itself, like the connection to other people, the accountability, the inner, exactly what you just said, the social connective sort of aspect. If, I, I think that applies way more than a, just addiction. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the social fundamental sort of aspect of, of group gatherings is is certainly critical to it, but it's really only one part of it. You know, no, it's not really just the like, group gathering, it's also the relationships that sure, the group creates yeah, I mean, but, and all that. But also... You know, woven within that, and like, I got to be careful because I'm not really supposed to talk about it specifically. But right. you know, there everybody knows there's 12 steps, right? right. And, and these 12 steps are really kind of, they're it's it's really, um, you know, when these guys wrote this book a long time ago, it's pretty prophetic because it's a pretty in depth spiritual spiritual program that requires right. you to really, you know, do what you did in psychoanalysis, which is take inventory, mm-hmm. own your past, make peace with it, make amends to other people, mm-hmm. you know, constantly be vigilant about your character defects and trying to correct them. And that's the work. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And then you, the group part of it is sharing collective experiences about going through those steps and what that means and stuff that comes up and how life crops up. And, you know, the, the truth is, and to get back to the disease, disease model is, you know, the drug or the drink is the solution to the problem. The problem isn't the alcohol or the drug. It rests within the person, right? And so you can, and so a lot of these people who are coming out and saying, well, there's a different way of doing this and, you know, let's let's try moderation or all these sorts of things, like... 
they might be successful in putting distance between a drug or a drink and an individual, right. but they're not really addressing the underlying the drive that's, yeah. that's compelling that person to use, right? right? Which as you know from the work that you've done is really kind of a deep down thing that requires a lot of fucking work. Absolutely. No doubt. I, right. like, I don't... Yes, I absolutely. It's funny you you said uh, a second ago something like uh, like, like I, I, in a way um, I almost think I don't want to say nothing boils down to everything boils down to this. There's almost nothing where it's like you can reduce everything down mm-hmm. to that. I wish there was. That would be awesome. But like uh, I feel like so much of what we talk about, uh, not just you and me, like everyone, like oh this problem, that problem, teen pregnancy, addiction. So much of it feels like. The more sort of you understand yourself and the more you, I think you dig into your own problems, almost anyone, you realize, oh, wow, like I don't have the sort of connections to myself and to other people and the depth of relationships that I really sort of, that I'm almost made for. I mean, humans mm-hmm. on a biological level are evolved to be, we don't exist independently. Our human raised without other humans is like a, I mean, quite literally an, an animal in the truest sense. They don't speak. They don't, they don't have higher order cognitive thought. They don't, they can't exist without sort of social connections. We're almost like this weird sort of networked animal, like a right. fax machine. Mm-hmm. A fax machine by itself is worthless and two of them don't have a whole lot of worth, but once you start to get a bunch, then it's like really useful, right? Humans almost are the same thing. I feel like so much in, in our, especially Western society, disconnects us from other individuals and from a group sort of unit. And so we get these neuroses that are a function of, right, exactly the underlying cause, yeah. you know? I th- that's only accelerating, and yeah. ironically, the internet is fueling that. Rather you think? Than I thought. It's, I think it. it's going the other way in a lot of ways. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think that it's easier than ever to feel like you're connected by staring at your laptop. You know, and you're not really connected. Day, totally. And then you never go outside and actually meet up with your friends and do anything together. One hundred percent agree. But I, to me, I feel like it seems like. Um, what starts the problem can eventually solve it. You just have to go through that dip, right? Mm-hmm. And so it seems to me like uh, uh, technology definitely for a while makes it worse because Twitter is like, oh, yeah, I'm connecting these people. You're not connected at all. It's total bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. Facebook, and it's total bullshit. All, I, I'm totally on board with that 100%. But the way through that trough is to keep going uh, because – uh, like I feel like socially we develop almost antibodies to this stuff. If you notice that my Facebook feed has changed fundamentally over the last four or five years, right? In what way? Uh, I feel like it uh, definitely four, five, six years ago when Facebook really peaked, uh, I feel like there was just, at least with my group of people who were, I feel like there were so many people and it was so much like, look at how great my life is and blah, blah, blah. And like now it's it's become a lot less about bragging and a lot less about stupid meme sharing. And it's people are starting to figure out ways to actually connect on Facebook or they're just not using it mm-hmm. because it's, uh, it's like eating fast food, right? It's like you're getting... It's unfulfilling and you get sick, right? right? And so I feel like technology uh, might – I don't know if it took us apart. I think it just – it exacerbated uh, uh, commercial uh, – what commercial industrial culture already done. But I think if we keep going, it push, it eventually pushes it back together because all of it is still a way to connect. Facebook is like an improvement over no connection. Twitter is an improvement over no connection. It's crappy, but it's better than nothing. And the next iteration is better. And the next iteration is better where eventually I think tech, uh, technology like electricity – and transportation f- moves into the background and brings forward what we all ultimately want is to connect to each other. 
and feel safe and respected and appreciated, that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty optimistic view of it. It is. You know it what is. I mean? Because, like, you know, I think that so many of these, these networks are really blown out right now. Like, I don't know if you've noticed, but, like, if you were to throw a tweet out maybe three, four, five years, five years ago, Way maybe, more response than now. The amount of, like, engagement that you get was, like, a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's just it's just a drop in the stream because everybody's following so many people and you uh-huh. know it just it, it, yeah. nothing gets noticed anymore and you know certainly true for Facebook and all these. Well, other I mean that's why Snapchat's huge and yeah. I think that like the, the the cycles are speeding up because I think the sort of that sort of social interaction the the disconnected social network interaction I think will be a phase and I think social will eventually be be built into things and will learn to use it in a way that like actually connects us. And I don't know exactly what that looks like because I would start the goddamn company if I knew, right? right? Um, but like, I feel like everything we do in, in, in uh, we take all this technology that's not designed, Twitter was not designed to be a social platform at all in any way, shape or form. And we, people formed it to that use because that's all what we desperately want is to connect with each other. And whether we admit it or whatever, uh, that's what we want. And sometimes it's toxic, sometimes it's not in a healthy way, sometimes it is. But I, I feel like we're going to keep, people are starting to really figure that out and starting to, there's a lot of really lame attempts at things that connect us that don't actually connect us because people are just imitating but every now and then something comes along that's like, wow, this is actually a change and it does bring excuse me, it does bring us closer. Like Periscope, Periscope. is an improvement on Twitter. Right. It's still crappy, it's still ridiculous. Whatever's next is gonna be better, and it'll just keep going and going until I feel like um I mean, we're evolved to live in, uh, you know, groups of 150, Dunbar's number, right? And everyone knows everyone, and we can manage the relationships between everyone or some some group beyond just one or two or three people or drinking buddies or whatever, you know? And uh, I don't know. It is absolutely an optimistic view, but I feel like um, it's not an accident that, that tech started as tech and now the tech is moving into the background and now the design and the art and the connectivity is really starting uh, to, to emerge and starting to actually bring people together, you know? Interesting. Um, I don't know. I you mean, know? in your sort of, you know, ventures in the in the tech startup world and angel investing and all of that, I mean, are, what are you seeing that's interesting in terms of like trends in that arena? Yeah, I mean... I actually haven't done a lot of investing the last six months or a year because everything feels um, uh, like iterative derivative. and derivative to me. Yeah, I, uh, the, every now and then I'll see something that's really cool. The only cool stuff I see happening now is all the really old sort of boring commodity businesses are starting to get re- people are starting to really look at those seriously. Healthcare is starting to it's it's corrosive and toxic as the healthcare insurance industry is in America, and it's awful. Whether you love socialized medicine or hate it, you have you can't uh, look at our system and think it works. It's terrible. And people with a lot of brains and a lot of power uh, and a lot of ability are starting to look at that system. Um, transportation, not just Uber, but like uh, logistical transportation, mm-hmm. ships, trucks, things like that. Uh, you know, like con- concrete contracting, building stuff. These really boring old hunt, you know, 20th century businesses could be so much better in so many ways. And that's the really interesting, the really, really, really interesting work and the really smart money right now is flowing into that. 
Um, but that's, and, and it's, it's not sexy. Like no one's like, oh, this is like a really cool sort of uh, software <laughs> database that helps us, uh, uh, you know, route shipping. Do you know shipping container stuff used to be done like paper and pencil up until like two years ago? Like craziness. Know that. Yeah, Nonsense. I mean, that's why companies like Oracle, you know, sort of behind the scenes solving like massive problems in business become quietly so successful. Exactly. You know, there's nothing sexy about it. But, no, databases you know. are net, they can't be sexy. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm an investor in Palantir, and they're doing, the stuff they're doing is so off the charts amazing, it's hard to even believe, right? Um, the other thing I think that's good, that's really kind of interesting is every field, you're going to start seeing startups that are blank plus AI, right? So whether it's social media plus AI or journalism plus AI or um, whatever, hotel booking plus AI, like artificial intelligence hit the tipping point last year. Last year, this year, some point, sometime last year, where machine learning and deep learning and real, like natural language processing, all that stuff came together. And it's like one of those things where it's like slow, slow, slow all at once. Mm -hmm. Right now, I would say 80%, I think, of the finance news that you read, if you read any, and probably 50% of the sports stuff, uh, not the commentary, but the actual just basic reporting, written by um, algorithms. Interesting. And you don't, you have no idea. None. Yeah, I was listening to uh, Sam Harris talk about AI on Joe Rogan's podcast a couple weeks ago, and, and he had just come back from a conference where all the biggest minds in that space had convened. Right. He just said it's... It's it's exhilarating, but also completely terrifying because of you know sort of how advanced these minds are and 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 kind of where it's heading. And they're know, not that. Way. No, what's crazy is they're not that advanced. <laughs> no, you have an iPhone, right? Yeah. How many times is your iPhone autocorrected to the wrong word? Oh, most of the time. Every day. Yeah. Okay. So, like, uh, can it learn that it? Can it just simply learn that when I type these letters, that what I mean is because I can, I, I'm constantly overriding the autocorrect. It, it should, and it doesn't, right? And it's not because Apple's bad at their job. It's because it's actually way harder than you think. So here's here's what I've sort of learned about because I, I thought about investing in a lot of those companies. And I realized I just don't have the expertise, but I learned a lot about them. And um, basically. Uh, AI and machine learning and those sorts of companies are going to be extremely good at things that humans are bad at, which is deep processing that is um, a fast, quick, deep processing that is just one sort of linear thing. But thinking laterally, humans are very good at associations, uh, all those sorts of things, and um, uh, computers are bad at it and not even close to being good yet. So, like... Listen, uh, is Skynet going to become self-aware and, and send the robots after us? I mean, I don't know. Like, some smart people think yes, some smart people think no, but that's decades away. You know, like, maybe our kids are going to have to deal with that. But you say decades, like, that's a long time from now. When the, you know, it's like, in the world like we live tomorrow, in. In the world we live in, that's a long <laughs> that's time. That's pretty frightening as a father of a nine-month-old, Right. Well, I'll, I'll prepare my son. Um, I'll, I'll have him watch the Terminator. We don't have to, don't have to worry about <laughs> Skynet for decades. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I'm not really worried about that. I feel like what's going to happen is um, you're going to see a lot of 
sort of repetitious. You're going to see a lot of people think it's like low level unskilled labor that's in trouble. It's not. If you're a hotel clerk, um, machines like if you're a bellboy, machines aren't replacing you because the infrastructure to build for that is really hard. They've built they've built hotels like that in Japan. They're actually really expensive, right? What's actually going to be replaced are middle of the road professionals, doctors, lawyers, people who are supposed to be really smart at high level pattern recognition are fucked. Done. Like uh, Watson, right now today, like IBM was going to start selling Watson services as diagnostic tool, and their bar was... Watson is the supercomputer. Yeah, the one that beat uh, What's-His-Face at Jeopardy and and won won a bunch of Jeopardies, uh, and then beat What's-His-Face at Chess, um, that that supercomputer. When that supercomputer or derivation of it could beat 10 of the best or 10 board-certified, like... um, uh, whatever oncologists at cancer diagnosis mm-hmm. um, could could beat them, then they would start selling the services. It did that like three weeks ago, I think, or, oh, really? or a month ago. Mm-hmm. Wow. Right, and these are like, oh, I'm a doctor. No one can do what I can do. Bullshit. A computer nurses aren't going to be replaced because administering medicine. Uh, nurses. Well, the nurse model of medicine is totally different. Than the doctor model. Doctors diagnosis, whatever. Nurses prevention and care. Right. So connecting with humans. Software and robots aren't going to be doing that for a long time. Nurses are totally safe. Might become more valuable. Doctors actually are in trouble. Paralegals doing fine. Mm -hmm. Lawyers might not be. Yeah, but I mean, you still have to go to court and make an argument. And, Absolutely. You know, so trial lawyers are fine. Yeah. But like, if you're doing like, um, you know, uh, doc review, you're done. Right. Well, that's paralegal work. Uh, mostly, well, okay, yes. Yeah. The, so document review, uh, a All lot the processing of processing of like giant commercial litigation yes. and like the massive amounts of paperwork and reviewing, which that is all just monkeys arguing it. over status I mean, there's already, anyway. There's already like a lot of software for that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. but it's, I mean, it's crazy how good that stuff is getting and the speed at which it's getting that way is um, that stuff where like uh, is those those people are in trouble. They're going to have to find, uh, which is fine, because I, if you're going to screw a class of workers, I'd much rather screw uh, middle to uh, middle upper class professionals because they're they ostensibly can find other work. If you're just a laborer, you're going to have a much harder time, and our society is not well equipped mm-hmm. to sort of teach you sort of how to how to use intellectual capital, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, but like those people are actually okay. Service industry jobs are are okay because it's really hard to replicate a smile, human interaction, et cetera. It's really easy to replicate high-level pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That was a good jag in the other in a, in a, un, un, uh, totally unrelated <laughs> direction. Direction. Yeah. 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 No, I like it. But um, yeah, to kind of bring it back to you know your kind of uh, personal evolution, like you know you were saying that you didn't have there wasn't like a, a bottom that you experienced, but there was a you know a moment where you were you made this decision to go into therapy, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, is that something you're still doing? I actually, uh, yes, I'm done with psychoanalysis uh, next week or the week after. How, yeah. do you, how do you decide that you're done? Uh, well, so uh, it's not supposed to be an endless process. It's supposed to be you go in and you identify things that you want to fix or rectify or situations you want to solve or whatever. And just figuring out what your problems are and, w- and what you want to fix takes a while. And then you work on them. And then when you fe- when you and the analyst feel like that, Basically, the goal is you want to develop the tools. You want to be able to recognize what your issues are, uh, recognize when they come up, and then have the tools to solve them yourself. So when you when you feel like um, 
you don't need to go to your analyst because you can solve the problems because of what you've learned in analysis, then generally speaking, that means you're ready to right, quit. Ready you to know? Do it. Right. Um, and this was motivated initially by a girl you were dating, right, who, who uh, basically decided to do this and you were able to recognize a change in her? No, not a girl I was dating, a friend of mine. But yeah, uh-huh. absolutely. I mean, it, it was one of those things where, like, like I said, I, I knew I fixed all my problems in quotes and I still wasn't happy. I was still lonely. I still didn't have the life I wanted. And so I knew that whatever issues I had were inside of me. And so I tried a lot of things. Most stuff didn't work, uh, either because it doesn't work or because I just didn't do it right. And um, what kind of stuff did you try? You know, like all the easy stuff: yoga, uh, uh, meditation works. I wasn't doing it right for a long time, so I quit. Um, meditation is fantastic, though. I, I wasn't mature enough or ready enough for it when I first started, so I tried that and quit. Um, you know, uh, th- different types of therapeutic modalities, different types of, you know, therapies, uh, just there's a million things, um, cognitive behavioral therapy is like a much easier type of therapy and that's like good for behavioral changes. That wasn't my problem. My problem was emotions, not behavior, uh, and behavior that maybe that came from emotions and, and, and sort of thought patterns, but it wasn't surface stuff. It was deep. And so for me, I, I Psychoanalysis is really, it's just one type of talk therapy. There's a bunch, and most of them work for different sorts of people. I needed one that was very, um, it was like I needed a thinking person's uh, therapy. I'm not, I am, I listen to my gut, but I'm not a super intuitive person, if you know what I mean. Like I'm not one of those people who just kind of feels his way to something. I have to understand it Mm -hmm. um, before I'll sort of, I'm not hyper rational, like I'm not Elon Musk or something, but I'm I'm in that more in that category than I am in this sort of feel your way to it category. And so for those sorts of people, analysis is really good because you're talking specifically and directly about issues. Uh, you're feeling them, but then you're also talking about them in the abstract and you're, and you're kind of identifying things. That was a problem for me is sometimes identifying my emotions. What was I feeling? Even the why, what, I knew, almost knew all my problems the day I walked in. It, it wasn't for me, oh, I had no idea that you know my mom wasn't very good or whatever like I knew all that shit it was more connecting what I understood to the emotions I was feeling and then seeing the results mm-hmm. right um, that was that mental exercise was very difficult for me and it took me a long long time four years four days a week is a right. long time four days dude. a week four wow. days a week yeah it's serious it's not like you got to go Every day, basically. Freudian, right? Mm. Freudian? Yeah, I, not really. There's no psychoanalysis that's Freudian anymore. Freud sort of started it, but no one really uh, subscribes to um, what anyone would call Freudian psychoanalysis. Right. It's sort of like no one calls themselves um, an Aristotelian philosopher anymore, even though like Aristotle is one of the fathers of philosophy. It, 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 Freud uh, was the first one to really... Uh, at least in Western practice, identify the unconscious and identify sort of how it works and sort of set those wheels in motion. But um, analysis has evolved so far beyond Freud that he's he's only relevant with a lot of core fundamental stuff and then some things at the fringes he's still right about. Mm-hmm. But he was more wrong than he was right about the details. But are you are you talking in general terms about you know the id, the ego, the super ego? And I don't think we've ever context. used those terms in analysis. Yeah, never. And does it involve kind of identifying what those triggers are that are leading to those behavior patterns that are making you unhappy? So no, that that's that, sort of the road, the sort, sort of, the road of signs. As sort of, it's more like um, it's more. 
So you don't really go directly. It's very frustrating to me analysis because you don't go directly at things. You come in and you talk about what's on your mind, right? You can't be like, oh, like, uh, uh, you know, let's talk about why I'm sad. Because Mm -hmm. as soon as you start talking about that stuff in the abstract, you move above the emotion and just into intellectual stuff. And then it's super easy to rationalize and to talk around it. And then you're disconnected from your sort of unconscious. Really, the the goal of analysis is to connect the conscious to the unconscious. Uh, Not directly because it's impossible. uh, Unconscious is very much a black box. That's why it's called the unconscious. Mm -hmm. But it's more about teaching you you to to not just see but to feel um, sort of things that you weren't letting yourself see or feel before so for example like uh, I used to have uh, I used to I still do uh, sort of an anger problem I used to be way worse than I am now and the only reason I'm good now is be or better not good I'm still a, lot, a long way to go I'm better is because um, I'm good at understanding like oh, I'm getting pissed off or I'm angry or whatever. It, I used to be like my, uh, not emotions possess me, but it's like, you, you know, you meet someone, you feel like they don't know what's going on in their own life. Analysis is about helping you understand what's going on in your own life. Mm-hmm. Not because you solve it and it's done, but because you have the tools now to sort of deal with it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think really I took the leap when last year I started pairing meditation with analysis because they're actually the 180 degree opposite way to deal with the same problem. Uh, and meditation for me was very, very, once I was, I think, mature enough, and I'd done enough analysis and I'd accepted enough things about myself and kind of like um, learned enough about my own brain. Like meditation works when you sit there and you're silent and you focus on your breath and then you let the things come up that you otherwise don't let come up. And you can't, I mean, it took me so long to stop being judgmental about it and stop trying to push it away. That's why meditation didn't work for me. I'd sit there like, oh, my mind's empty. And it's like, dude, you haven't reached enlightenment in 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, like you're pushing things out. So I had to learn how to let them come up and then deal with the anxiety or the fear or the sadness or the shame or whatever comes up. And then you like recognize it, you accept that it's there, you let it flow over you, you can investigate it, don't judge it, don't try and push it away, let it have its say in a way, and then it doesn't go away, it just kind of like, it stops um, having a control or a power over you because you've now recognized it. You know, does that right. make sense? Yeah, of course. It, I mean, to me, it does for sure. I mean, you know, I'm active meditation person. I mean, it, it really is empowering to understand that um, the vagaries of your thinking mind are distinct from your higher consciousness yes. and that there is a dividing line between the two. And that's the first step in starting to recognize that you can actually have power or control over those emotions and that you don't have to be a victim or just fall prey to them as they arise, right? So mm-hmm. in the in the sense that these are two very different disciplines, analysis and meditation, you know, one is very active. You're sort of exploring the rational, you know, thinking mind as a way to tap into the unconscious mind, right. whereas meditation is the allowing, right. you know, it's right. sort of- You're the, shutting off the rational mind yes. and letting the other thing come up. Yeah. Right. Or, or trying to get to that place where you can transcend it mm-hmm. to get more clarity. Yeah, I've never gotten close to that. <laughs> like, I'm just happy when like, I can like, when I can let my unconscious go where it wants to go and not try and direct it and not try and like, like push it. Dude, it's crazy. It seems like, how hard can it be to sit there and not say anything, it's right? It's the hardest thing. Fucking hard, man. It's the hardest it's thing. It's really hard. If you're doing it right, but, man. But the thing is, when you get to that place and you're like, oh, 
they're just emotions. Right. They're not going to kill me. I actually have a choice. Like, I don't have to engage that. Like, wow, I never realized It's there. It's a part of me, but I don't have to write. I don't have to react to it or engage. Yeah. It. yeah. yeah. I think maybe, I think I've, I try to get 20 minutes in a day. Uh, 30 is sort of my goal. Maybe once or twice I've gotten to 45. Mm-hmm. Man, it's, it's, it's embarrassing almost. I mean, are you doing a specific method or? No, not really. Um, I've read a bunch of, of sort of the books and, um, you know, like a Tibetan, uh, Zen, uh, you know, whatever, a lot of Sam Harris's stuff you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't, I, I feel like, uh, honestly, the the book that helped me the most, and I'm not sure this would be where people should start. It worked really well for me, though, was... Um, uh, Mark Epstein's book, uh, The Trauma of Everyday Life. Mm. So Mark Epstein is a psychoanalyst and a Buddhist uh, uh, practicing. He's been a Buddhist for even longer than he's been an analyst. And he's one of the guys who has done, a, to me, an amazing job of sort of reconciling the two disciplines and explaining that they really are very similar. They're just totally opposite ways to sort of approach the same problem. And uh, the uh, Trauma of Everyday Life is actually a, a, an analytic, uh, psychoanalytic uh, analysis of the life of Buddha, the actual Buddha, right? And uh, it was pretty mind-blowing. And uh, he kind of taught, like, I don't want to say real Buddhism, but just the original sort of form of of Mm. Buddhism um, and uh, uh, through the the story. And it's very simple. Like, that's the thing with meditation. It doesn't need to be complex. It can be really simple, actually. Well, that's, that's, you know, you're a smart guy. You want to analyze everything. You want to understand it completely. And that's why meditation is so frustrating and eluding because you're never going to do it that way. And there's a million different ways in and different modalities and strategies and practices and all that sort of stuff. And you can get so caught caught up in chasing that, that you mm-hmm. actually never sit down and fucking do it. So, that, that was a big <laughs> like, part of the problem for me. So my, my solution to that, because I've been struggling for like 15 years, 16 years, like trying to get to a place where I could do it consistently right. was to just let go of all of that. And I, I just um, started using uh, Headspace, the Headspace app. You know, yeah, I, I, I haven't used it, but I know yeah, that and, one and uh, Calm people recommend a lot. Yeah, it's it's good. And, and Andy Puttacombe, who's the guy who voices all the guided meditations, mm-hmm. and he founded the company. They're down in Venice. And you know he was a Buddhist monk for like 10 years. Like yeah. he he's put in his 10,000 hours. The guy knows what he's talking about. But it's very, you know, it's very palatable in the sense that, you know, he's not trying to use vernacular that you can't understand or, or, or trying to make it tricky. It's just very user-friendly. And the most important thing is it just allowed me to do it. Like mm-hmm. It just makes it easy. And so it makes it easier to actually do it because that's more important than whatever you know type you're trying to pursue, I think. Dude, it's crazy to me to think that like the hardest part of my day is not building a company. It's not writing things that millions of people want to read. It's not. It's sitting quietly <laughs> for thirty minutes <laughs> with my thoughts is the fucking hardest it's part of my super day. Hard. How nuts is that? It's super hard. It's so man. It's like it even makes in, it, it makes it even more frustrating. Yeah, it does. It, it, it's because like because there couldn't be anything easier. You know, but I don't mm-hmm. know. It's crazy to me how hard it is. It's almost like it, you and you you read like a, a, I've read, of course, like every, like a, a, like I totally am. I read so many books, uh, everything from like the Buddha in blue jeans to uh, the Unquiet Mind, all, Thich Nhat Han stuff, like all those guys, uh, you know, Pima Chodron, like uh, and like it, none of that translated into you actually doing it. No, of course not, <laughs> because that's why I'm reading it, so I don't right. have to do well, it. Well, it's it's sort of uh, you know. 
in recovery, they say like self-knowledge will avail you nothing. You know, it's sort of like intellectualizing everything and understand like, oh, I yeah. get, I get what that means. Like I got it. I'm, right. I'm good. I'm, yeah. It's like, no, no, that's very different from actually from practicing doing it. it and doing mm-hmm. it. Right. right. It's like, yeah, you read all the books you want about basketball, go out there and hit a three pointer. Right. It's not the same thing. Exactly. It's totally true with meditation. It drove me so nuts. It's still, it's still like one of those weird sort of paradoxes that like, um, at least so hard for the human mind to sort of rec- like reconcile. Mm-hmm. Like how can the hardest thing in my life be sitting there and focusing on my breath? Right. And you just fight yourself, you know, and it's like all you have to do is just let go of that like argument, you know? Oh, uh, dude, I'm the worst at it. I'm the worst. I'm the worst. It's embarrassing. All right. Well, congratulations on almost graduating from analysis. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, when I when I kind of, you know, look at your books and, and your writings and, you know, I think that, that uh, you know, whether, whether, you know, people are a fan of yours or not, um, you know, the writing is exceptional and the storytelling is exceptional. I'm not sure that the storytelling gets enough credit because that's what distinguishes you from every other dude out there who's trying right. to write in your genre. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're, you have a very, you know, developed capacity for how to, you know, weave a yarn and do it, do it in a compelling way. Um, and I think that's a, that's probably the biggest reason why your books have been so successful. I agree. Um, and the second aspect of that is, you know, the emotional truth that carries through it. And part of that emotional truth for me is, you know, I see like a little bit of a, uh, you know, there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of tragedy in there. You know what I mean? So I see a guy who's trying, who's searching for answers in all the wrong ways and is celebrating that. But you know, like, where is this? You can't help but say, where is this leading? You know know what one of my friends said about this? uh, It's actually the girl who got me into analysis. Um, She wrote something and it wrote it like, it's like eight years ago. And it was so like stunning. It's like one of those things where someone says something and it just cuts through everything and hits right at the heart. And it was uh, it was something like I'm paraphrasing, but basically it was like Tucker writes this stuff that's so it, it, it's 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 hubris and boisterous and arrogant, but then he flips into this heartbreaking, sad little boy, and you see it just quick enough to know it's there before he goes back to um, uh, to the Tucker Max you understand. Because you, you don't want to wallow there for too Right, long. exactly. You can't because then <laughs> yeah. it's not funny, right? Uh, but but she's like, that's why uh, pe- the people that love him love him is because they see that and uh, and they contrast that. And I remember I read that like when I was like 28, right, or 29. And, I, and it, it, it both like cut me so deep at that time in my life because it revealed the truth that was so profound. Like I couldn't even argue with it. Right. I remember getting angry actually is what I, cause that's how you deal with your emotions when you're me in 29, you just get angry instead of sad or whatever. Um, and so, uh, I, like, and but I, I didn't like. I remember I like I, uh, I I didn't even argue. I just got really angry, and I don't know. I broke something or stuff with a girl. Who knows what I did? But like, uh, um, it stuck with me. Like the way you can't get a truth out of your head that you know is true, but you don't want to face. And it was like that was one of the things I feel like that. Um, that whenever like I get off center, I always think about that because it's true. It's exactly what you just said. Mm-hmm. There's like a, a, a genuine, I, I never, I didn't write this on purpose. I didn't do this on purpose. It's not like, oh yeah, here's what I'll do. I'll put in this cool little uh, heartbreaking thing here. And of course not. Like mm-hmm. uh, all I did was when I was writing, I was like, what's the truth? What's the tr- what happened? What did I feel? What happened? What did I feel? And whenever I wasn't sure what to write, I'm like, just tell the fucking truth because like, that's always the right answer if you're trying to write something people want to read. 
always mm-hmm. tell the truth. Like what you felt, not like, you know, the forensic police report truth. What happened and then what did you feel? And if you do that, well, the emotional, the emotional truth trumps the facts every time. That's, like if that's you what have I mean. To, if yeah. you have to hedge the actual facts in the timeline in order to, to no one get to a greater emotional truth, that's your job as a writer. No one you know cares I mean? about fa- irrelevant facts. And that's the only thing ultimately at the end of the day that's, that's either going to connect with somebody or not. You know? and, and I think, it, you know, we be, look, the internet has really um, you know, ignited a new generation of people who have finally attuned radar for bullshit. Yes. It's like... They don't have time for ads. They, they're not going to sit through anything, and they can see from a mile away when someone's pitching them a bunch of nonsense. And so, authenticity really has become more important than it ever has been. And that has to infuse. Like, if you're out there in the world, if you're a public figure and you're putting out content, if you're not being authentic to who you are, you know, whether that's everybody's cup of tea or not, um, then people you, know. Yeah, people know immediately, right? And so. I mean, I faced that same thing when I wrote my first book. You know, I was writing, here I am like a, you know, this vegan, you know, ultra distance athlete, you know, and I'm writing this memoir about my life. At the same time, I knew that this guy, Scott Jurek, who's like the world's most successful vegan ultra endurance athlete in the world was writing his book at the same time. And I'm like, who's going to read my book? You know, there's no reason to read my book whatsoever. You know, I've never even won a race. I was like, what's the point? Yeah, but you know, that doesn't matter. Right. So I, so, so. So I, but I realized, I said, you know, look, most sports memoirs are terrible. They're written to extend a brand. And, and that's mm-hmm. not to say that Scott's, you know, Scott's wrote a great book. So it's, it's not about him. But I realized that the only way that anybody was going to care at all about anything I had to say was directly proportional to the extent to which I was willing to be emotionally raw, vulnerable, and honest, you know? And so I had to write it like I was writing a diary that no one was going to read. And that's a very frightening yes. prospect. And that's something that I think a lot of people aren't willing to do no. or that most writers don't understand. No. And it was very frightening when I turned my manuscript and I remember turning to my wife and saying, I hope I didn't just make the biggest mistake I've ever made. Like, it's terrifying to be so open in that regard. And, you know, the stories that you tell, you know, they're incredibly humorous, but they're, you know, that it, it paints a very, you know, specific picture of a guy that, you know, is, is, is going to, you know, very well going to, you know, be on the receiving end of a lot of vitriol. I am, but the, the funny thing is, if you actually read the stories, I'm the loser in like half of them. You know, like people like, I can always tell if someone's read the stuff by the reaction, because if they're like, well, if the basic tenor of the questions is, you're not so great, why do you think you're so great? I know they haven't read it. You know, if the basic tenor is like, I love, I thought it was funny, like the storytelling, whatever, then it's like, I know they read it because if you read it, I mean, how many stories I shit myself in them, Mm -hmm. you know, like I'm not the hero. Like I I tell the truth of what happened and the real truth of any life is sometimes you're amazing. Sometimes you're awful. Most of the time you're somewhere in between and it's a tragic comedy. Like that's what life is. And that's what the stories are. But like the way the brand is projected. And part of this is absolutely my fault. The way the brand is projected is like, oh, look how awesome I am, just mm-hmm. from the absolute surface area. But then you read it, and it's like, oh, wow. Right, but you have like a shit-eating grin on the cover of your book. Exactly. And it's like you're inviting that. Yes. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. So. No, of course. <laughs> well, when I first started in media, my assumption was that facts mattered, people
people did research, people understood what they were talking about before they talked about it, which is ridiculous and naive. Well, all you have to do is read the first article that gets written about you on the internet and realize how many factual errors are in it, and then you question whether anything you ever read is true. <laughs> you know what that's called? It's called the Murray-Gell-Mann effect. Because, uh, the phys- okay, so the physicist, the really famous physicist, Murray-Gell-Mann, um, he uh, he was talking about how he uh, reads the paper. Uh, whenever he gets to the science section, he's like, he said almost exactly what you said. Every single thing in the science section is wrong. Even the things that are right are right for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. And he said, and I realized one day I was turning the paper and I like laughed at the science pa- uh, stuff. And then I turned to the business section and I just started reading and assumed it was all true. And he said, wait a minute. If everything in the science section is wrong, why am I giving any credence to this section? I don't know whether it's true or not, but it must have the same editorial standards. And he said he stopped reading the paper after that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is, I'm sure you know, as well as I do, if you're an expert in any field, you know me media gets everything wrong about it, guess what? They're the same way about every other field. Right. It's so disappointing when you start to realize that most adults are just terrible at their job. (laughs) Dude, when I realized the adults weren't, no one was in charge. You know what it was, man? I I feel like... uh, you know, I feel like this might have happened to my friend and I just remembering it happening to me. But basically, uh, the day I really understood this, I think I was in college and it was like, I looked up the word bucket and the definition was like, it's a pail. And then I looked up like pail and the definition was it's a bucket. And I was like, what the, this, like, seriously, it was like, no one's in charge. I think that like happened in class or something, my buddy, but it was like such a vivid thing where it was like, how is the, this is not an ordered universe we live in. It's just the, people put the illusion of it on, you know, for Um, comfort and security. Exactly. Otherwise it's terrifying. Well, it's better to, I, I, man, I've always played the, or been of the mind that it's like, it's better to recognize something for what it is and then adapt to it, than pretend it's something it's not, and then suffer the sort of consequences of that, you know? Right. Um, but not everyone's like, that. most people aren't like I that. I know. Yeah. All right. So you do all this, uh, psychoanalysis, right. you've been able to make peace with your past and we didn't even get into, I mean, you had, you know, maybe not the roughest upbringing, but, you know, certainly had your challenges. Very, you know? di- very typical. I think, uh, I think it's pretty clear. Like when I was reading about some of the, you know, the circumstances under which you were raised, it's, it's just not surprising that you behave the way that you did in your twenties. You have narcissistic parents who, uh, they weren't bad people. They were just bad parents. You know, they didn't, they just didn't care that much about, uh, their child. And, and I wasn't abused. I wasn't abandoned. I had plenty of food. It was nothing like that. Right. It wasn't the narrative of abuse that like is easy to see. It's a narrative of abuse that like, um, I think a lot of people suffer through and don't really realize it. And then they have shitty relationships when they're adult and they don't realize why, which is exactly my life. Right. Um, in fact, the lunch I was telling you about, we were talking about this. Um, and like, uh, I, Right. It, no one hit me. No one sexually abused me. It was nothing like that. And if you met my dad, he's perfectly charming. You'd love to have dinner with him, right? But you're a smart dude. You would see it. Not everyone does. It's like, oh, yeah, I wouldn't want to be this dude's son. You know, like he's a performer. He's not a human. He doesn't connect with people, right? And that's fine if you don't have kids. But if you have a kid, then it's like, well, what's your kid going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and there's ways to but deal your with that. Parents divorced when you were really young, right? Like a year and a half, kind of wasn't around until yeah, much later. I mean, right? He, he, but even when he was around, he wasn't around. 
You know, he was, uh, my parents are boomers and they are like, they could be the dictionary definition of boomers. And the boomers are like the dumbest generation of narcissists the history of the planet's ever seen. And my parents fit squarely in the center of that. They are so boomer. It's ridiculous. They met, they met at one of George Young's Coke parties in Manhattan beach. That's how boomer they are. Seriously, dude. My mom was a flight attendant for Pan Am, and my dad was like a stockbroker. Oh, my God. I, I know. Right out of that movie, Blow. It, seriously. Yeah. They, they met at, like, one of his uh, things in Manhattan Beach. Mm. And so, like, um, they're not evil at all. They're not. They're just sad, broken people who shouldn't have had kids. Um, yeah. And so it was – I had a shitty childhood only in that it was, like, um, lonely – uh, I mean, I had friends. Like, I wasn't like some social outcast, but I didn't. I didn't have a family unit. I didn't have that sort of stuff. And yeah, I didn't really. I knew all. None of this was news to me, right? So it's not like no repressed memory. I mean, I got it. You don't really. I think it's very easy to just be like, oh, so what? It doesn't matter. Yeah, I get it. Whatever. You don't need to cry about it. It's easy to disassociate from that. And that was a lot. I think a lot what analysis did is connect me to those emotions and really start to understand how those those created sort of patterns of reaction, you know, to right. things right. like why you, I have an anger problem. Why do you get angry? Because anger is much easier and not everyone is this, but for a lot of people, it's much easier to be angry than it is to be sad. Mm-hmm. Anger, anger is essentially a defense against sadness. Can well, be. Well, behind, I mean, when you break it down and you peel back all the layers, it always goes down to fear. You know, fear is behind pretty much all of it. Yeah, so you know, you a get, lot of people said that. I don't know. If you get it's angry, everything. you know, what's behind the anger? Uh, what's, for in my case, I think most uh, often, sometimes fear, absolutely. Like you're afraid of, of whatever. But uh, for, I feel like for me, it was sadness. You know, it was like um, it was easy to be sort of like uh, angry instead of being sad. My, my wife is like um, uh, very uh, intuitive and very emotionally intelligent. And she even calls me on this now. Like she's like, Something will happen. I'll get angry, and she's she'll kind of look at me, and she's like, "You can feel sad. It's okay." And I'm like, and "Like," and then I get even more angry because I know she's right. You know, like she only she doesn't do it every time. But sadness just, doesn't give you the rush that anger. No, does. of course not, and, and with a feeling of power or control. Mm-hmm. Like, um, it, it it's funny. She um, she's uh, really. Uh, I, I after getting married, I totally understood the saying. I forget who it was. Some English guy said, like, you know, um, were it not for women, civilization men would be naked apes grunting and. Like women are so civilizing. Like I, I used to get so angry driving, right? Which is like not not road rage, but just like scream at someone, you fucking idiot, you cut me off, whatever. And so um, she looked at me one day and she's like, okay, from now you're not going to do that anymore. Like you have a son in the back, right? You don't want him to learn how to, you know, like uh, how to deal with emotions like this. And I'm like, yeah, of course you're right. And so she's like, here's what you're going to do. When you're angry, when you feel like screaming, I want you to yell out. I'm very angry. <laughs> so, so like, and so of course I'm like, you that's, can't do that without laughing. Right? right? That's like the point. The whole thing. You're, you're right, right. precisely correct. So like, someone will cut me off, and like she'll see me grip the wheel, and she's like, I'm, and I'm like, I'm very angry. And then like, you can hear me. I laugh in the middle of it because it's so ridiculous. Yeah, it's like out of a Will Ferrell movie. Or it something is. Like that. And so like, uh, she, like, um, yeah, like that's. That's sort of like um, I'm learning those sorts of like, – that's more of a cognitive behavioral thing. But like small things like that are, are sort of what um, what I'm starting to understand and, and kind of how I'm starting to connect that with myself. You know, like – but why did I used to do that? I think a lot of times as a kid especially is like it's 
it, when, when your life is so sad, um, it's sadness is overwhelming. You can't almost can't, you have to push that away. That's what post-traumatic stress is. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm not trying to com- compare myself to a soldier in combat because that's ridiculous. But that's why uh, uh, that's what post-traumatic stress is. Overwhelming emotional reactions are pushed down by the brain because they will freeze it up on, on a very real level. And so uh, it basically stores that up um, until you can st- process it safely and then it brings it back up. And that's not like hokey new age nonsense talk. That's, 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 I mean, the clear as day, that's the science mm-hmm. is how it works. Uh, and so and it works this combat, the mechanism that work that happens in combat is no different than a child feeling lonely and sad and scared because his parents aren't around. Mm-hmm. Same mechanism. Your brain doesn't distinguish between the differences, even though objectively they're different, extremely different. Uh, the brain creates a reaction in the same, just like, um, I mean, any number of situations, a guy being made fun of by like a girl, a hot girl rejecting him feels a huge amount of trauma and stress, even if you know objectively it's not a big deal. Right. You know? Well, he's associating that with, you know, being unworthy, being unlovable. Like all these things are primal that go back to, you know, probably how he interacted with his mom, (laughs) you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. So the more kind of self-realization that you have around these issues, I mean, you can look back on the decisions that you've made, you know, throughout that period of your life. And it's like, of course, of course, Mm -hmm. of course I did that. I almost couldn't have made a different choice, you know, but now you have the ability and the control and the aptitude and this toolbox to sort of, uh, uninstall those buttons or maybe not uninstall, learn different but habits like, and yeah, stuff. but like install new buttons. Yeah. Right. Maybe, right. right? Th- that's the goal, man, is I try to get better at like, um, how I, how do I, I try to see my emotions a little bit before they over, overtake me. Right. That's what I meant. And about then the, understand the, 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 the road signs, mm-hmm. you know, when you can kind of see it coming, no, that's, you know, because exactly. once it picks up steam, like forget about it. It's, Can't stop it's it. a done deal. Yeah. Right. So mm-hmm. being able to identify it early on, the earlier you can see it, then you have that ability to pause and, and make a difference. Right. Choice. And you're not disassociating from it. You're recognizing it. it's yeah. there. Like you don't stop the emotion or control the emotion. That's impossible. You just recognize it. You give it space. Space and you don't react to it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can decide not to react to it if you see it, understand it, but you can't control it. Like pushing anger down, it's like you can't hold a lid on a boiling. No, pot. you just the, hey, this is how I'm feeling right now, and like embrace it and accept it, and mm-hmm. try to like work through it rather than avoid it or repress it. Those are different things, right? And mm-hmm. that becomes like kind of ephemeral and how you do that, but that's where the work is, right? Yep. So, uh, so I want to get into like how important it is to have. Um, you know, a healthy mate who can be that sounding board. I mean, in my experience, obviously it sounds like you have that, you know, and that's been instrumental in my life. Yeah, Bird was telling me your wife is like amazing. She's incredible. She's just, she has laser ability to see right through me and know exactly what's going on and and know the best way of, of addressing it. You know, not in a, I think when people hear that, they think, oh, it's like a nag thing. It's not that at all. It's just, it's that capacity to like really like objectively understand what's happening and, and kind of navigate the situation. There's, I don't think in my, I don't think there's anything better in life having someone who fully uh, understands and has the measure of you, but still accepts you. That's right. that's the whole. That's what a great relationship is. Yeah, I know the you, threat of being and I abandoned. love you. Exactly. I know right. you, and I love you. Mm-hmm. That's like. And here's what's going on. Here's what you're doing. You mm-hmm. know, and you've did it the other day. You know, and like, what's going on? How can we? You know, 
How can we find a different way? It's fine. I, I like uh, I, I do a podcast now, and I have a book coming out that's like sort of sex and dating advice for young guys. And I, I say like, guys all the time have questions. Most of their questions that they think about are sex and dating are not really. They're like emotional problems that the guy has that he doesn't realize and he's projecting onto girls, which I used to do all the time too. So like I, I don't stand in judgment, but so much of this, I, I'm like, listen guys, uh, if you want to sleep with a lot of girls, cool, no problem. If you want to act like this, you can. I'm just telling you though, you're eventually going to figure out what I figured out that, you know, these sorts of relationships are, are, are optimal, not just because it's not like an, like an optimization efficiency thing. It's because this is the best, uh, like this is the most rewarding, most satisfying for a reason. People end up do, pairing off for reasons. It's mm-hmm. not like marriage might be a social construct, but pair bonding is not, you know? And uh, and I kind of like try and walk guys through that. Not like you need to go pair bond at 24 if you're not ready. No, but just understand like this is where you're going to go if you do it right. And this right. is where you're going to end up. And it's okay. And to be clear, that's very different from, you know, the billion dollar industry of, you know, trying to you know, teach guys how to, you know, pick up girls and the bars. worst. Like this the, is, I hate them. You know, it's like you cannot the worst. hack your way into a relationship. And the typical <laughs> no. relationship paradigm is, you know, two people get together, there's some level of a mutual attraction there. Mm-hmm. And then each person projects onto the other person their idealized version of them that comes with mm-hmm. all that baggage mm-hmm. and all of that. And and each person tries to sustain that or live up to it for a certain amount of time until... Or they lie to themselves. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's actually a good guy. <laughs> right. Until inevitably, you know, the truth comes out, the veneer cracks. And they're and, angry. And they're, they're real, the real version of who they are is is mm-hmm. demonstrated. And then those people are either going to be able to work through that or they're not. And usually they can't or they don't, right? And so the, 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 the key and kind of what I've seen, you know, in listening to your podcast a little bit. And, uh, you know, I'm somewhat familiar with the new book. I read the proposal, Bird sent me the proposal, yeah. and, you know, I'm excited for that to come out, is you're cutting through all of that and saying, look, it's not about that, man. You got to do the inside work. Like, you're not going to, it's not about 10 tips or tricks or tools. Like, it's exactly what you had to experience to get to this place. And, mm-hmm. you know, and there is kind of a hilarious, like, inherent, irony in that you would transition <laughs> from being, you know, the frat tire guy into the guy who's going to now, uh, sort of, um, you teach know, guys how to be good men, men, how to be good men, you know Seriously. What I mean? but that's the beautiful arc of, yeah. of your life. And I think that that's, you know, that's almost poetic and literary in its own way. It, 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 you, if you wrote this script out, people would be like, ah, it's too hack. It's too cliche. Yeah, it's like, right. oh the, yeah, the, the guy who does that is going to now do this. Like that would never happen. <laughs> but you know, what's funny is that it, it, so it you, really you must get some heat for that. Eh, I, I mean, you get heat for everything, man. The only way you don't get heat is to stay out of the kitchen, but you got to eat, right? So I'm going in the kitchen. This is the way it works. Um, like, uh, the funny thing is, man, it's, it, I didn't orchestrate it like this. It's just like so many guys come to me for advice about sex and dating. And like, I, I, it's not even that I'm that much of an expert. I just figured out, I think, what most guys who really put in the work figure out by the time they hit 40. And then I paired up with Dr. Jeff Miller, who's like the F psych expert and really understands like a lot of the sort of deep science, but between like behind what I intuited. And then after that, man, it was just explaining fundamentals to guys. The vast majority of what we teach is stuff like if you want women to like you, you have to be attractive to women. Like, it's 
seriously, like you're like looking at me like that can't be it. It is. And like, what does attraction mean? It means being clean. It means being in shape. It means uh, being intelligent. It means being kind. And like, what does kindness look like? No, it doesn't mean weakness. It doesn't mean being a doormat. It means these things, right? What is uh, women like strong guys? What does strong mean? It means the, it doesn't mean abuse. It doesn't mean posturing. It means, you know, capability. It means, uh, uh, you know, sort of like effectiveness. It means whatever, like really foundational, fundamental stuff. But the sad reality is our society does totally fails at teaching people anything, I think, about relationships. And it really fails at teaching men, I think, how to be um, attractive to women in a way that is both um, rewarding for men and also gives women what they want. And how to functionally interact with women in a healthy way. No instruction. Right. So, and so, you know, looking at this arc, you know, it's sort of like, you know, earlier Tucker, um, you know, on some level, you know, narcissistic and, and, and maybe broken perhaps in certain respects. In certain ways, it's true. And, you know, entertaining in that regard, but, Mm -hmm. but certainly, you know, kind of understanding what was really going on with you and, and then bridging this gap to becoming empathetic, Uh right. And understanding that, oh, you know, this person actually comes with a heart and a history and a life and friends and family. To be empathetic, you've got to first and, understand yourself. And too. that's terrifying mm-hmm. because then you're taking responsibility for somebody else's emotional well-being and that's very You can't scary. be selfish anymore. You know what I mean? And, and, and if you're not empathetic, you don't have to deal with that, mm-hmm. right? And then you can and you don't feel like your own emotions. abandon right. and that will take you where it's going to take you. But I think that the, the idea of engaging somebody on that kind of a deep level is, is, is frightening. You know, I don't know. No, the, the, I hadn't thought that, of it that way. What, what you just said is, is, uh, the empathy part, like part of being empathetic is not just recognizing another person's emotions, but your own. So it's really, if you don't want to connect with your own emotions, one of the best ways to not do it is to not connect with other people's either. I, this is like right. totally well, basic. Wanna, I just hadn't wanna, thought about it like if you that. Wanna, if you want to get familiar with your own personal character defects, like get into a relationship because they will come to the surface really quick. <laughs> I know. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it was funny. And, when so, I, and you don't have to do that if you avoid relationships. So that's a comfortable real place of being. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yes. Which is, you, you sound like my fucking analyst now. She's like... Uh, and she's right. It, it just like uh, it sort of frustrates me when when um, not when she's right. It just frustrates me when like I have to face things I, I pushed off for a long time. Um, like part of the reason uh, that I, I probably had a lot of relationships with a lot of different women is because then you don't have to have a deep one with anyone. You know, mm-hmm. and, and part of it is because having sex with a lot of women is awesome. But then on some level, it just is unarguably. But then on the other level, it's also like I don't have to deal with my problems if I have a new girl every week. You know, because we never get to my problems. Mm-hmm. It's it's funny. Like when I met my wife, um, like it's the first the same week thing or two, with gambling or or anything. You know, mm-hmm. substances, shopping, television, food. It, it's running away from uh, from pain or issues or whatever you don't want to face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's an, it's it's so easy that you could. I mean, like so much of what people do now. Uh, so much of social. A great critique of social media and, and that sort of stuff uh, that I think is absolutely true is this sort of enforced uh, busyness. Oh, I'm so busy. No, you don't. You had yoga and then you had like a spin class and then you were on Twitter for an hour. Right. <laughs> it's just like you feel like you're busy because you're. It's a great way to run away from things you don't want to face. Even just basic low level emotions, like we were saying a minute ago. Right. It's hard to sit in a room with yourself for 30 minutes. 
Like, have you seen? There's great studies about this. People would rather take electric shock shocks than sit in alone in a room alone by themselves for five minutes. Like tons of empirical data about this. Not even meditating, dude. Just sitting yeah. in the room alone with nothing would ter- ter- rather take electric shocks. It's terrifying because then you're with yourself. Yep. What are you going to do then? then you got to face it. You know what I mean? And, and the road gets narrower. So, you know, you've done the analysis. You've become very aware of, of, you know, how you function in relationships. And then it forces you to then look at other aspects of your life. How am I using social media? How am I using food? Mm-hmm. How am I using my body? What's my, my relationship to television? My career. How, yeah, workaholism, all these sorts of things, because they can all be, be very similarly used and abused to exit or escape from whatever it is you probably should be working through. I put off analysis, I think, for six months uh, when I was finishing my last frat tire book. It is sort of subconscious, but I honestly think it was one of those things where I knew if I didn't finish that book before I started analysis, I might never finish it. Oh, yeah. You can, you, once you go into analysis, then you'd be like, why am I writing this book? That's the, that's the question. And if you don't want to face it, it's like, uh, you know, and so I, I really did put it off for like, part of it was I was, I didn't want to start, you know, like anything hard, you don't ever want to start. Um, uh, but I think another part was like, um, I didn't like, I was afraid and it probably wouldn't, I, I, I might've used an excuse to not fail. It might've been like a double sort of excuse thing, but yeah, I was, I was like, you know, it was sort of like the same, uh, um, Augustine quote, like give me Lord, give me chastity and continence, but not yet. You know, right? it was like one of those things for me, mm-hmm. I think. Um, yeah. Cause like as soon as you're, as soon as you're starting reflecting, then you have to ask yourself, why am I doing this? Right. Like, what's the, you know, and I'm not quite ready to ask myself that question. I don't want to, I don't want to, well, I can ask it. I just don't want to answer it yet. Mm -hmm. You know, and then when you're in analysis, that's part of the the, the cool thing about analysis is that it's a relationship with someone else where you're uh, accountable. And it's like, uh, ostensibly, it's someone who's very intelligent, who knows you very well. And so they, in a lot of ways, they act as a mirror, but it's non judgmental. It's not like a great analyst. Um, is someone who bounces you back to yourself, but in a way that you can handle and see, mm-hmm. right? Um, and yeah, that that should be the point um, if it works right. Speaking of your relationship with work, you have some new stuff coming up, right? Like you've got book mm-hmm. in a box. I want to talk about that a little bit, which yes. is pretty cool. Um, you know, as somebody who's, you know, put out two books, um, you know, I've had my experiences in traditional publishing and, and, uh, you know, the solutions that you're offering and the options for people out there, I think is, you know, a much needed service in, in this, in this, in this world, you know, in many ways, uh, you know, old school publishing is, is broken and it's rife for, uh, 2.0 and new ways and means of approaching it. And I think what you're doing is pretty interesting. Yeah. So, uh, basically I, I have a company called book in a box and the whole thing started on, but not almost by accident. It was by accident. This People, you know what's obnoxious is 10 years people have been asking me, how do I, how do I do a book, right? And then I tell them, we well, have to write it. And they roll their eyes and like no one wants uh, to write a book because writing a book is really hard, right? Uh, and so, of course, my view was always they like- They want it, but they don't want to put the work in. Right. That was like my view. And it was a, uh, but I kind of went a little further. I think even though I hate this snooty literary elitist, I still had that attitude that was like, well, if you really want it, you'll sit down and do it and you'll put in the work and blah, 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 right? It, which it is, is a litmus test. If you want to be a writer, if you yeah. want to be a writer, that's true. Absolutely. If you want to be uh, someone who crafts, who takes ideas and, and uses words to express them and crafts them, 
absolutely true. There's no way around that, right? But uh, what I realized was you, you don't have to be a writer to have a book. They're different things. You know, being a writer is fantastic, but it is a craft. It, it's sort of like um, you don't have to win marathon. You don't have to be a marathoner to go running, right? Mm-hmm. You can go run for fun, for exercise, whatever. Totally fine. You don't have to be a marathoner. It, it's sort of a similar metaphor. You don't have to be a writer to have a book. A lot of people have a lot of great ideas and amazing knowledge and wisdom they should share with the world, and they don't have the time or ability or desire to ever write it down. And I've realized this crystal clear, this one woman, uh, this brilliant entrepreneur I met at this entrepreneur dinner thing in New York. And she's like, I've had people ask me to write a book for 10 years about what I do. I don't have time. Um, Can you help me uh, sort of turn my uh, knowledge into a book? And I was like, well, you have to write it. And she's like, you know, I gave the standard answer and she's like, kind of rolls her eyes. And then I started lecturing her about hard work, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like I'm teaching this woman who's done 10 times more than me in life uh, about what it takes to do things. And so she stops me and she's like, Tucker, um, are you an entrepreneur? And I'm like, yeah, I like to think I am. She's like, well, I I am definitely. And uh, what I do in my job is I solve people's problems. Do you do that or do you just lecture people? And I was like, oh, <laughs> it was a total gut punch because she was 100% right. So it was like I went home and I was like, okay, how do I solve a problem? And then I, it, it's one of these things I could have done eight years ago if I wasn't an arrogant shit. Uh, basically, I realized to get her ideas out of her head and into a book, all I had to do was essentially translate it. And so it was like I figured out a way, my co-founder, Zach, uh, to sort of create, uh, to talk to her, create an outline, right? Figure out what the book was going to be about, who the audience is, all the things you have to think about first if you're really doing a good book. And then from from that outline, we got someone uh, to interview her, like a professional journalist to interview her, get everything out of her head about her subject, right? She's a book about retail, pop-up retail. Um, and then... Uh, uh, we got the the recorded. It was about eight hours on the phone. Uh, transcribed that. Took the transcription. If you've ever read a transcription like of this podcast, it's really hard to read. Yeah, Any yeah, sort yeah. of you can listen to things. It's great. You can't read them, right? Because they're different mediums. So then we just had an editor essentially translate it from audio transcript into book prose. Same ideas, same words, everything. And she's like, this is amazing. These are my thoughts exactly. This is perfectly, this is right. Public, you know, did cover everything, published it. It's done amazing. So it's sort of, I mean, on some level, there's a ghostwriting aspect to it, although I wouldn't characterize it as ghostwriting. I mean, it's really, no, it's not ghostwriting at all. Of of being able to put every aspect of the book together for somebody and put it out there, including designing the cover and like everything. Ghostwriting is someone else, uh, you tell them, write a book on sales, it's their ideas on sales, and then you're paying them to put your name on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our clients pay us 15 grand, so we're not cheap, but you're never going to find a good ghostwriter for 15 grand. Ghostwriters start at like 50, right? 50 or more. like a huge percentage of a, you know, for big books, a huge percentage of the advance. Exactly. So uh, what we're doing is taking your ideas or the, the author's ideas and just translating them. That's it. Like we don't add content. We're not doing the thinking for them. Like this book is, she has a very unique perspective about pop-up retail, which I don't know. I don't care. I don't know anything about pop-up retail, right? But people who care, care a lot. And so like the editor's job was not to write about pop-up retail. It was the interviewer got everything out of her head and the editor's job is to make it flow well on the page. But it's her words, her ideas, her everything, you know? And and it, it retain, she retains all the intellectual property 
it, right? Oh yeah, she so owns the like, royalties. You're not like a publisher where mm-hmm. suddenly you're participating in. She owns everything. Yeah. She owns the royalties. She owns the rights. She owns everything. Like her book is, is a great example. Uh, she's only sold 500 copies, but she's done a couple million dollars in business. She signed a huge deal with like the biggest mall con- uh, or the second biggest mall company in the, in the country. You know, because she's in retail, and she's keynoting like three conferences this year. Like, and she, her book is for the people that care about pop up resale. Her book has become the Bible. It is like the thing, and because it, that's most fields, most fields, professional fields especially, have all this inborn sort of tacit knowledge, and it never gets written down. Because if you have a field where the practitioners make money, you're making money. You're not writing books about it, mm-hmm. and a lot of times fields change quickly, and they don't. You know, I don't want to like uh, give my secrets away or whatever, right? So if you're trying to get into sort of uh, pop-up retail, you have no idea where to start. Nothing, right? Her book has become the bible already in like six months since it's been out because she's the first person who ever put all these ideas down. Right. Mm -hmm. And I feel like honestly, like not to get all like, um, whatever preachy or pitchy or something, but like, I feel like, um, there's so much knowledge and wisdom in the world. You feel like there's so much content. Most of it's bullshit. And the stuff that should be written down is not because most of the people that are really fucking smart and really talented and doing amazing things are too busy doing it to write it. Yeah, and they're not writers. Exactly. Very, very there's a small crossover between people who write and people who have great things to say. There's a tiny crossover. Mm-hmm. And those that crossover are great books. But most writers don't have anything to fucking say, and a ton of people who have a lot to say aren't writers and will never take the time to write. Right, right, right. So, so it's a very, what's their solution? So your your client or your customer is a very specific person. Like for me personally, like there's no way that I could imagine no. you know, like having somebody else You're write a writer. books because that's You're what a writer. I do. You no, know you I mean? shouldn't, like, yeah. That would just mm-hmm. make me insane. Like I just couldn't imagine that. No, like, no. And I'm sure you couldn't either. But, but for somebody who's a CEO of a business and they're looking at their book not as, you know, some great piece of, you know, literature or high art, but as kind of a lead generator or- Or a way to pass on their knowledge. A way to pass on their knowledge and also to kind of substantiate your level of- of Authority, credibility. Exactly, exactly. You know, honestly, the way I like to think about this is, um, so uh, uh, in antiquity, there was uh, the Library of Alexandria, which uh, the Egyptians for a thousand years collected every piece of knowledge, uh, not just from their kingdom, but from Greece and Rome and everywhere, right? And the Library of, of Alexandria was this legendary building where supposedly every piece of human knowledge was in there, like how to grow, you know, sort of grapes in Corsica and all this stuff, right? And then Julius Caesar burned it down to make a point uh, to Cleopatra, and we lost a thousand years of human knowledge, gone, right? I feel like um, Google does an amazing job at catalog- cataloging information, not at knowledge. And I feel like we don't have the tools. Uh, we could rebuild the Library of Alexandria, but we need the tools because people aren't people aren't g- going to sit down and do this. But if you make it easy on them for the, to them to organize their information into knowledge and to record it in a way that other people can use, that's a serious sort of service. That's that's what makes me excited about this. Like selling fifteen thousand dollar packages is like, man, who fucking cares, right? Like that's just transactions for money. Like I'm not trying to like promote someone's speaking career. If that happens, that's great. What I care about is like creating a process where the knowledge and wisdom of humanity can be recorded and shared. 
That's super powerful. I, I would guess that 90% of the books we do won't really matter, but we're going to do hopefully 10%. Maybe even if it's only 01% of the books we do uh, end up making a difference, almost none of these books would exist without us, mm-hmm. right? Or without this process. Mm-hmm. Like we have a book coming out, describes our exact process. We're going to sell it for basically nothing, two nine nine, or give it away free. Yeah, because, there are books that would have never happened otherwise. Right, because I feel like, teach. I'll, I'll show the world how to do this. I don't care. Like people are, who are going to hire us are hiring us because they have money and no time. Uh, the knowledge is fine. I want people to do this because I feel like there's there's a huge group of people who should be sharing their knowledge and aren't. Think about it. How amazing would it be if we had Joan of Arc's memoirs? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I mean, like, wouldn't that be awesome? The, one of the great books ever written is Anne Frank's diary. It exists by accident. Right, uh, uh, just because this poor girl was locked in a closet, had nothing else to do, an attic, had nothing else to do, wrote down everything she was thinking and feeling when the Nazis were occupying the Netherlands, and it's like this amazing book that has changed millions of lives, and it basically exists by accident. How much of that shit have we lost in history? A lot, right? The technology now exists for us to lose none of it. And most of it might be worthless, but the stuff that isn't is amazing. And that books change history. Books change how people think and how they interact with each other. How many books? What books? What books have had an imp- impact on you, dude? That's probably why you write, right? Is because yeah, yeah, books change. Same with me, man. Of course. So you know, there's a difference between knowledge and information. You know, totally. In, in today's age, information is disposable. It's instantaneous. It's unreliable. Totally and, different than knowledge. You know, knowledge is a different thing. And there's still something really special, even though we are in this disposable age about a book. You know, a book is a book is a way of affirming um, permanence in some regard. You know, and and the the tangible yes, idea as a of social object. Yes, yes. But it, it, I'm not even talking about digital versus physical, which is a different discussion. And I actually agree with you. I like physical books. I have 3,000 in my play. I love them. So I, I'm, I'm, I like digital. I like both, actually. To me, they're not uh, contradictory. But like, I'm talking more about, like, yes, turning... Our process is really good at turning information into knowledge. If you just want to record information, then just talk about it. Uh, you don't need us. You can just dictate and then get it transcribed. Uh, use SpeechPad. Don't use us, right? If you just want to uh, vomit onto a page, you don't need Book in a Box or the process. The process is about – the way we go through is like the first question we ask is what's your goal? Second question is who's your audience? And the third is um, – how are you helping their or your audience reach their goals? Because that's what makes a great book is you delivering value in your book that the audience connects with and needs, right? Otherwise, it's just like, oh, I'm going to tell you how awesome I am. No one gives a shit. And there's too many of those crappy books. Right. But on some level, you recognize the difference between a book about you know pop-ups and, the, and that business and you trying to mine your emotional truth in the book. Totally different reading. books. You know, those are, that's a different animal. Totally different books. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think I could write my book in this process, my book, uh, but uh, we actually do have um, someone who's coming through who's very similar. It's a woman who has like lots of funny stories and she's actually using our process. Um, and, and it's, I think it's working actually really well for her because she's, she is funny. She's a decent storyteller and the process forces her to like the way we do it is we make people uh, really focus on what they're saying that matters to their audience, mm-hmm. right? That's knowledge. Mm-hmm. What do I know that you uh, would find valuable? 
that's what we put in books. So we try to make them about that, right? I sent a friend of mine to you guys. Who? Khalil Rafati. Oh, dude, we saw, we're having lunch with Khalil, Khalil tomorrow. Oh, you are? Yeah, we. Yeah. Uh, his book is, uh, we just finished his manuscript. Oh, we're did. actually delivering it to him in person tomorrow. Oh, very cool. You sent us, I thought I Neil sent Strauss him. sent us. Uh, no, Khalil. well, I mean, I, I gave him the idea. Maybe he's friends with Neil, I don't know. Yeah, he is so friends. maybe so. Neil is the one who pushed him over the top, but like, I had a lot of conversation with Khalil about Yeah, he's like a- He's a, been on my podcast. He's, he's had a good an amazing life. Well, his story is insane. It's crazy. <laughs> Heroin addict. Like now yeah. he runs the organic juice stuff. stuff and yeah, yeah. he's like an amazing, and it's so Are funny. Are you going to Sun Life? Yeah. We're, uh-huh, yeah. Oh, we're cool. going tomorrow to awesome. his place. Um, awesome. Yeah. He's a, an amazing, I think his book is actually going to be really good. He's, he's got a, a story I think will resonate with a lot of people. Yeah. It's, it's very. You he, should listen to my podcast interview with him. He's amazing. Yeah. yeah. His, I mean, the way he can tell his story and his, I mean, talk about an arc. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's, it is. It just genuinely is like, I, it was like, when I looked at the outline, I'm like, this can't be real. And but he's like, a, oh, yeah. you know, but Khalil, you know, and this is not disparaging at all because I love him to death, but he's like a very ADHD guy. Yeah. Like he's a, he's, he a, movie, he's a moving target. Like he just can't sit still. So there's no, no way, like initially I'm saying, here's how I think you should open your book. And right. here's, here's what I, I, I think you should make sure that you're focusing on and right. thematically. And and, and I'm just like, he's never going to write this book. No. It's never going to happen. It never would happen you know? without us. And that's a shame, you yeah. know, because he really does have such a, an incredible story that is could empower and, Khalil's and the perfect, a lot of people. It is, seriously. You know? it, he's the perfect example of someone who's perfect for our process, uh-huh. you know? Like, the uh, other example I give is Malcolm X is, like, basically, Al, him and Alex Haley use this process. Not not literally, of course not. Like, But, like, the idea that you can use the spoken word and a well-structured interview to lay the foundation for the book— um, it is something that uh, has been done over and over through history. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just no one has made it systematic and made that that knowledge sort of almost algorithmic and checklist so that anyone can follow it. You right. know, that's really the only thing we've done. We didn't invent like using talking as a basis for books. God knows, right, right, right. we didn't. Or you know, or the Republic wouldn't exist. You know, how many books have you guys done? Uh, we're we're at client sixty right now. I oh, think. That's cool. wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Profitable from the uh, get go, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. and, and it basically, like in terms of scaling this, like you're just dependent upon this network of independent contractor editors and and people like that, right? So, you know, as you grow, you're gonna you you have to grow that network, obviously. Yeah. So, um, what we do is we've we've actually found some amazing freelance. There's so many high. Uh, really high, like highly talented sort of artistic creative people because the way the world is changing it's not that necessarily there's no jobs for them it's just that people who are used to a certain type of job like journalists right like um some of them don't adapt well right but what we've done is we've we don't just say hey here's a an ex journalist go have fun like we have a very systematic process where like we have a different person outline them our outliners so our main outliner is this guy Mark Chait we just hired full time he was a senior editor at penguin and an executive editor at harper collins we have another guy who's a senior editor at a different publishing house or used to be who they, those two do our main outlines and they're i mean they're so amazing at taking sitting down with people and getting out of them what really matters, right? Like what they really should be talking about, what the book should be really about. So it's not just like, hey, what do you want to write about? Part of our job is helping uh, those people figure out what the most interesting thing about themselves is, you know, to reach their goal, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so uh, uh, we do the outline. So Chait will, or, or, or it's all uh, the guy. The outline is so key. Oh, dude, we spend three hours on the phone with them and then probably another 10 to 12 hours off our outliner does getting it right. Right, and, and then once your outline isn't tight, you're done. 
it's it's a disaster. It's a disaster. (laughs) We've had one client we screwed up the outline, and it was my fault actually. And it's been so much work getting everything fixed. And then once we have the outline, then we have like man, former Washington Post reporters and so many really talented people. We we do everything in between. Like and so all we do is we connect like the journalist or the editor is what we call the position with them, and then they schedule like four or five calls, and then they just go down the outline. The, and they're like, okay, this seems so. Tell me about this story, and then blah blah blah. And then they keep. It's their job to ask questions uh, until they feel like everything is out of this person's head about this subject, right? Um, and so, like, you know, we we give them some outline or some general structure, but you don't need to teach uh, people who spent ten years covering the, the Department of Defense how to like probe and ask questions. They know what they're doing, right? So we just hire the like really great people and we test them, you know, and stuff. And then once we know they're good, then and that's all they all they have to do is ask questions and then we do all the transcribing and then we send it back to that same person uh, with the transcription sections, the relevant ones plugged into the outline. So it's whatever, 60,000 words. Right. And all they have to do is go through and just make the sentences into something that flows on the page. Mm-hmm. So the editors, it's a really easy job for them. And, like they we first them, it's like, oh, this seems hard. And then they do it and they're like, man, I did 4,000 words today. Like you can't write 4,000 original words in a day and make them good. But editing the fast sort of edit of other people's words is no problem. And so yeah, it actually ends up going like no problem. You know, like we, we, we have turned out, listen, it, our process is not foolproof in that, um, Garbage in, garbage out. If you have a really stupid idea, then we're going to produce a well-structured, beautiful book that is full of stupid ideas. If it's a great yeah, I mean, idea, if, though, if, it's if a great the, book. If the you know quote-unquote author isn't good at conveying their ideas or isn't a good storyteller or it's isn't our clear on what they're trying to express, then there's not much that you can do with that. Well, uh, I'll tell you what. Yes and no. If they don't have any ideas or they don't have any stories or they don't have anything to say, you're right. There's nothing we can do. <laughs> Why are they writing a book then? They shouldn't be. Yeah. We, we turn down um, – uh, listen – uh, we're not trying to like not make money, but we turn down about ten percent of the people who come to us either because they're well. The cr- CEO of every business probably wants a book. Doesn't mean they have anything to say. We try. Yes, yes, and no. So our job is if they have nothing to say, if they're literally like, I just want a book, then we we don't do ghostwriting. <laughs> we refer them to ghostwriters, and people come to us like that all the time. Like I don't really have anything to say. I just need a book to get tenure or whatever. It's like okay, here's a list of seven ghostwriters that we know that are really great. Are Go you, deal with them. Let's just pause there for a minute though, because just that statement alone like makes my skin crawl. Because there's this idea that yes. like. You know, books are not, you know, books don't really have that much value. They're just these lead generators and I just need the credibility. Right. And that makes me crazy because I know how much I've poured into my books and I'm mm-hmm. sure you feel the well, same way. Well, that's why you sell books though, dude. <laughs> like, and people listen to you. It's almost, uh, it's such a, it's such a disrespect for what it is on some level. Yeah, I, those people don't matter, man. I don't, I just don't think about it. I don't worry about it. We push those people to ghostwriters and it's okay, great. Have fun. What we found actually, a lot of people come to us and they're worried that, well, I don't know. They say, I don't know if I have enough for a book. And we're like, okay, let's do the first outline call. Uh, if nothing comes out of it, no big deal. You don't owe us any money. We don't, no problem. And so it, like the first call is basically risk-free and it's fine for us too, because we don't mind that spending that, that part, uh, money because we don't want to do a shitty book either. Right. Uh, and so what we find though, if you're, if you're 40, 50, 60, and you've been a professional for 20, 30, 40 years, you know shit. You may not know what's interesting to other people, and you 
might not know uh, about what you might not know what you should say in your book because you don't know what audiences will react to. That's our job to mm-hmm. understand. Okay, what you know here is very valuable. If your book is, we almost anyone who's a professional who knows how to do something, we can pull a really good book. We just have to make it narrow and specific. So mm-hmm. you know, like it. We have one guy who come who came through um, a plumbing contractor. And like, what are you going to write a book about, right? Actually, so our outliner, like, talked to him for like an hour about plumbing and realized uh, the biggest problem he has to solve is un, sort of um, unfucking other plumbing contractors' uh, ways that they screwed uh, or, or mess with other people's sort of stuff, right? Uh-huh. So what we realized was he, he had an amazing book in him about how to figure out if your plumbing contractor is legit. Mm-hmm. And it's like essentially a systematic process where it's like, here's the questions to ask. If he says these things, he's legit. If he says these things, he's not. And it's really simple. You know, it's, he doesn't teach you about plumbing. He comes at it from the perspective of like the homeowner installing right. a plumbing system, right? And it's like, who cares about that? Well, I'll tell you what, when you're installing a plumbing system and you search on Google, you have a very, very high uh, care rate. You're not, you're not browsing for this book, but when you need it, you need it, right. right? And he's like this big time plumbing contractor in a big area of the country. And so it's helped to get him a bunch of business. And he's like the guy now for like plumbing. He's like one of the nationwide experts. Uh, and like, it's sort of the same as Melissa's story. It's almost the same story. And we, he had a ton of really valuable valuable knowledge, but it's only valuable at a specific time to a specific set of people. But it is extremely valuable mm-hmm. to those people. We actually charge like the maximum for the ebook, $9.99 that you can on Amazon for for uh, uh, th- that type of book because like if you're going to buy it, you don't care what it costs. Right. As long as it's a legit if book. If your toilet's overflowing. Exactly. And I think we're actually going to end up doing a video or we're not going to do it. We're going to push him to some people who do this, a video series with him where he's going to walk people through. Here's how you like, okay, plumbing contractor does this. He's right, whatever. So like even a sort of the higher end thing, that'll be like $99 or whatever. Where like, if you really want to know what you're talking about, even more than the book, then it goes even more into in in depth Mm -hmm. because that, that knowledge is you're spending, I don't know, five grand on a plumbing sort of solution for your house or whatever it is. You need to know that stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's the sort of thing. It's called tacit knowledge. It's not literature. It's not life changing and sort of like wow, I had this a, revelation. It's, it's not just, an owner's manual either. It's somewhere in between. So it's very, no. it's very, it runs very deep and very narrow. Right. It's it's like a fifty thousand word book. So it's not that long. It's easy to read. You can skip around. He's like some is commercial, some is I don't know, bidets. There's like different systems. I don't. I, what do I know about plumbing? Right. But it's like. I can totally see if I build a house, I'm going to read that book. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to read the section that matters to me, and that that's going to be extremely valuable to me. That information. Yeah, and and kind of expanding on the idea of what a book is, right? And I just read the piece you wrote that you put up. I think you just just put it about up conferences, about conferences. Yeah, conferences and the idea of trying to, you know, capture capture that information and repurpose it in new and different ways. And the idea that you know somebody would hold a conference and have all these amazing speakers, it seems almost 
painfully obvious that you would want to it's put a, all of that in, in writing right. and offer it to people. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, like, it's like you think about it and, and, and so much about what we do in life is obs- I'm telling you, man, your son and my son are going to have a conversation in 30 years. But can you believe our fucking dads used to drive their own cars? That's insane. Like, it, no one's going to believe that we used to allow people to routinely kill each other through operating motor vehicles. Of course, we didn't have the technology to sort of make them automated. But like that's going to be like one of those things people think it's insane. I'm telling you, in five or ten years, people are going to think it's insane that we had all this information and no one systematically turned it into recorded, shareable knowledge. Because, I, like, dude, think about the price of acquisition of just the plumbing example. Like, what is it going to cost for me to learn all this stuff? I got to hire somebody at thousands of dollars or hundreds of dollars an hour. And that's the cheapest solution. And like, I got to hire a plumbing consultant to deal with my plumbing contractor. And it's like all this sort of stuff, it's, it's not anything that's high and mighty and fancy, but it is really important to people, a lot of people, a, a lot of times. But how, I mean, couldn't you just go Google it and try to find the answer? I guess the, the trick there is that you don't know that the information is reliable. You don't know it's reliable, and also you, most of the stuff you actually can't Google, you'd be shocked, dude. You think everything's on the internet? We've just started. I, th- I think we've literally just started. Google is really good at cataloging information, but like this sort of weird tacit information doesn't get put up because it's either too niche or it's too expensive. The opportunity cost for that plumber, he makes, I don't know, 200 bucks an hour, mm-hmm. right? Or whatever, as a plumbing contractor. That's a lot of money. He's not going to sit down and write a book. He's not going to write a blog post about this. That's nonsense. But for he's going to pay us because he knows he can indirectly ROI that book. Right, because the knowledge actually is really valuable. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's not like he's he's not writing a book about oh the six things your your SaaS business can learn from plumbers. You know, it's not like that right. stuff. It's like here's how to do something that uh, five million people have to do every year, and five thousand people know how to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. You know. I mean, like we talked about this earlier, sometimes the most important stuff is the stuff operating in the background that makes things better. Cisco is not a sexy company, but it's worth 300 billion or whatever because it makes the world a way better place. We're not going to be a $300 billion company or a $30 billion company, probably not even a $3 billion company, but we can be a very valuable company because the process we're creating, I think is going to unlock huge value chains uh, for a lot of people, I think in a way, and not just the process we're creating. I think if we're successful at this and and all signs point to like a serious yes, then people are going to start realizing what if we could do this for music or movie scripts or whatever, you know, what if we remove the friction uh, between turning an idea or a piece of knowledge into something that's consumable and authoritative and correct, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I mean, I can see how you can scale it and expand it into, you know, knowledge-based areas, even like, you know, keynote presentations Mm -hmm. and things like that, where people just don't have the time to do it, speeches, Uh things like that. It gets tricky when you start to venture into the world of art, though. Like when you're talking about screenplays and you're talking about, you know, sort of- You think so. More- Except uh, you do realize that like, and I don't say this in a bad way, like music, you have everything, oh, music, free-flowing, music's extremely formulaic. I mean, like four beat, you know, like- like it, it, ask any musician, they'll tell you there's a ton of room for impro- improvisation within the rule structure. Like you, freeform music is not music. It's a kid banging on a pot. That's not, I mean, that's, 
all music has very precise structure. Just like you think, oh, you could never do this as fiction. Well, and Bullshit. screenplay has Genre structure. And, screenplay is extremely you know, narrative structured. fiction has structure. Everything has structure, uh-huh. you know, but but you know, the interplay between, you know, structure and expression. You're is, absolutely you right. Know. No, listen, you're absolutely right in that, like, I don't believe, I'm not saying, like, computers are going to be writing good novels anytime soon. I mean, though, if you give people the structure, the, if people aren't thinking about process and they're just thinking about art, it makes the art better. It makes it, and it expands the type of art you can create. Think of, the iPhone is a perfect example. So 20 years ago, you're old enough to remember, 20 years ago, if you wanted to be a professional photographer, what did you need? Enough equipment yeah. to fill this room, right? Uh, years of training on that equipment. You had to develop pictures, lenses, lighting, like all this crazy things you had to learn that had nothing to do with actual, like capturing an image, right? I mean, they do because it's the equipment you have to use, right? What do you need now to be a professional photographer? Mm-hmm. An iPhone and Instagram. Like it, now, you still have to take great pictures. A pure, Absolutely, a purist would take issue with that. Uh, well, I mean, and there's a difference between you know a Nike, uh, like a Canon, you know, five D and an iPhone. I'll, I'll but, tell you. I'll tell you. Uh, every professional photographer I know says that that's uh, that that sentence will be n- untrue. Uh, before you know it. Yeah, we're heading in that direction. Right. And, and, sure. and the difference Accelerate, now... Accelerating the, in that direction. The difference now is so subtle that like there's only a few cases where you need a serious Canon 5D and lenses and lighting and all that stuff. I mean, listen, you're never going to hire someone with an iPhone to shoot your no, wedding, probably. No, I mean, probably, it's for whom and when. Like, it's like, what is your purpose and what is your goal? The point isn't that one's better than the other. The point is that, that an iPhone unlocks entirely new value chains of photography that did not exist. The, the, the best photographers in the world right now are arguably Russian kids with iPhones hanging from antennas in uh, Moscow, right? I mean, like, that's nuts and totally impossible before. Totally impossible. Now it's possible, right? And so, like, if it's possible with photography, what if someone does with content what the iPhone did to photography? It doesn't make old school cameras bad. It gives us so much more value to play with, you know? Well, it democratizes everything. Mm-hmm. And, and, so, and it in does a certain that. respect, that, that's kind of your market advantage. You're democratizing something that is, you know, traditionally been reserved to the, you know, the elite paneled walls of, you know, of New York City. And it is the ultimate populist movement because it's not it's not saying giving the Internet gave everyone a voice. People have voices. Most people don't have shit to say. Fine. But the people who have something to say but don't have the time or ability to turn it into a cogent sort of structured piece of content, then we remove the friction. Mm-hmm. That's it. You know? And so that their what they have to say can now be turned into a knowledge that's shared with the world instead of just knowledge that's shared with people they mm-hmm. know. You know, and just think of it on a personal level. How cool would it be if you had your great grandfather who immigrated from Slovakia, whatever, I'm making it up, right? But like if you had his memoir about where he came from and what it was like, you never met the guy, but it's like that's direct descendant. That's mm-hmm. who you are in a lot of ways. How cool would that be? Mm-hmm. You know, like it's almost my, like a cool gift you could give to somebody. Like, my great grandmother was my gift. You're gonna go and you're gonna talk to this guy and we're gonna put a book together. My great grandmother and grandfather on my dad's side, uh, were uh, Ashkenazi Jews, refugees from um, 
some horrible, not not the Nazis. It was earlier, but like some World War One thing. Like not a sexy like genocide. It was like one of the normal awful ones, right? And like came to America, changed our name, anglicized. You know how we figured out that we were Jewish, part Jewish? I took twenty three and Me tests. They never told anyone. It's not even part of our family history wow. to realize that we are essentially exiled Ashkenazi Jews uh, on my dad's sort of uh, paternal line. My dad didn't know he was 40% Jew. Hmm. And, and that's just one tiny just, little thing. Right, just lost yeah. forever. Mm-hmm. That Doesn't have to be. So what's the vision? That's it. That's the vision is that we turn the knowledge and wisdom of the smartest, uh, most capable people uh, into books. We, we share the knowledge and wisdom of the smartest people in the world with the world. That's it. Like, that's what we're trying to do. Um, and is this like your full time? Is this pretty much a full time thing for you now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, it, it's. How it's, many employees do you guys have? You have we just hired employee number five, number six and seven start next week. And then how many like stringers do you have? Uh, freelancers. We've yeah. got maybe 40 or 50 right. that we work with on a routine basis. Um, yeah. And we, we don't, uh, no offices, totally remote company. Mm-hmm. Uh, dude, like I have a whole sort of, uh, uh, we, we started this company. I, I was, I swore no, uh, industrial era, corporate age principles. We're going to, this is a total knowledge economy. Everything of value in this company is in the heads and the hearts of the people who run it. So we're going to build it totally differently from the ground up and the assumption that yeah, there's this no is, like intellectual property technology application to it really it's a human resources thing uh, no no there I, there's no ip in, the, in terms you think of like uh, like software but our our process is is uh, i hesitate to call it proprietary it is we're i mean we're going to put it in a book and give it away and teach anyone how to do it but like um it it it, it is it's a lot of things that individually a lot of other people have done. We put it together in a way no one else has yet mm-hmm. uh, because we're getting results no one else has gotten. And we're doing things that no one else has done. And uh, I think this is only be- the beginning, though. I think if we can turn this into software as a service, then we, char- we, we have to charge $15,000 now. It's an expensive thing, right? But if it's software as a service, we can charge $50. Mm-hmm. And then we can have a, a whole marketplace where it's like, oh, you want to pay 500 bucks for an amazing cover? No problem. We've got the everyone. Right, the service can meet the budget. Exactly. Then it can expand. You can do it yourself, or you can, if your budget's three grand, you can get amazing work for three grand, et cetera, et cetera, right? And then all of a sudden, it, this isn't just reserved for people who have money and no time. Now it's anyone who has anything to say, any knowledge and wisdom they want to pass on, anyone who wants to record stuff for posterity for their family, anyone. And of course, 99.99% of that will be, uh, I don't want to call it worthless, but extremely niche use cases. But there a whole genre of books, a whole series of books are going to come into existence that are world-changing that would not otherwise have existed. Like Joan of Arc's memoir, not literally, but like that something like that um, is going to happen because, and it's not, it, it doesn't trade off with, I don't think we're disruptive to traditional publishing. That's the funny thing is like, you're never going to use our service, well, nor should you. Anyone and who's you're a not writer. A th- and, and what you're doing is not a threat to what they're doing. It's not. Know? It's, it's, it's actually new. complimentary. Right. iPhones didn't get rid of Canon uh, 5Ds. It it turned a whole new class of people into uh, a type of photographer and unlocked a whole new value chain. I think we are uh, actually not, weirdly not disruptive at all to traditional publishing. Um, uh, even though yeah, you would these think- These are books they would never touch anyway, so it doesn't They matter. wouldn't exist yeah. anyway. 
You know, there there might be a tiny uh, sort of element of some people who might have gone to digital publishing who use this anyway, celebrity memoirs, things like that. Yeah, I mean, there's a Venn but diagram, and at some point, you know, you have small, the person though. who wants to, you know, who's making that decision to self-publish as opposed to go the traditional route for for reasons I'm sure you can understand and, mm-hmm. and reasons I've contemplated. Um, and there's a big difference between self-publishing and professionally self-publishing, right? And to the extent that you can help somebody navigate that Byzantine world, you know, that's a, that's a value because otherwise, you know, I tried to study it. I learned as much as I could about the differences between traditional and- You gotta pay, just pay and, somebody. Yeah, and it's like, it's a lot. I'll tell you, you what, know? if you wanna self-publish, obviously we actually don't advertise this just because it's not like a core part of our business. We have maybe 10% of our business are people like you who establish writers they want to self-publish, but they want professional self-publishing and they don't want to learn it themselves. Mm-hmm. We, it's like six grand to take a finished manuscript all the way through the end of the process. That's no problem. Right. That's, that's like what, But that doesn't change the world. That's, that's just like additive. James, right? Like, yeah. Like what James, it's what I did for James. Himself. Exactly right, what right, I did right. with James. And then I, I did the publishing. Ryan did the marketing. The book did amazing. Um, uh, that that That's interesting, but that doesn't change the world. That's just additive. It's a mm-hmm. small efficiency change to what exists. I think the book in a box process is a totally different thing. That's what's exciting to me. I mean, the other thing is great. We'll do it. Like, if you want to self-publish, dude, we'll uh, we'll give you a friend rate. We'll do amazing. No one will be able to tell the difference between uh, those books and the ones we do with you. Uh, it's no problem, and and it'll be far cheaper than if you ever decided to do it yourself. And there's reasons to do that, and not do that. And if you want to explore that, I'll be happy to get on the phone and walk you through it. Although I'm sure you're smart enough, and Bird has probably told you everything. But like, that's that's just like okay, fine. That's just a service that that's fine. It's like hiring someone to fix your right. plumber or plumbing. Right, right. No right. problem. But we're we're creating a whole new sort of thing, you know. That's exciting. Yeah, I, I'm. I, I'm. We'll see. That's what we're trying to do, man. You know, people. A lot of people try to do this. Not everything works. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, know? I mean, it's a laudable goal, and it's already profitable, and it's already succeeding, and growing. So you know, and we, you're obviously we some passion, good you're passionate about it too. We because we I've I've seen what we can do already. Right. You know, and I know it's just the beginning. I see some of the stuff coming through. Like, dude, Khalil's a perfect example, yeah. dude. That book doesn't exist, and his book might be amazing and change the world. It might change five people's lives. If you know, it just says that. That's pretty cool, but we're going to do one of these uh, that's going to really truly be like the what the autobiography of Malcolm X was to a certain type of person, a certain generation. We're going to do that book for the next generation, and we can't take, I'm well, not going to take credit for it. The it's way that it's gonna person's idea. Yeah, the way it's going to happen is it's going to be some unknown person that yep. nobody's ever heard of, and there's going to be something about that story that's just going to connect in, mm-hmm. a, in a way that you can't fathom or predict. In, uh, totally. In a way that, you know, something like Fifty Shades of Grey becomes a thing. Like, you don't know how that happens it just happens right and and it hits something with that no vol- one else was doing yeah with volume you know that day will come right yeah i i, I well, that's why we don't try to predict you're gonna wish that you actually <laughs> right. own some of the upside yeah i know i, I mean know. what was that to see? you obviously probably i'm sure you thought about that and you made a very conscious decision to not you know be a participant well because here's here's the thing i feel like if we start uh trying to capture the upside then it screws up our incentives you know, and it makes us. You, it's if you try and feed uh, on uh, both sides, it doesn't work. Um, we are either a service business or we are a partner business, right? You can't be both. A, a market, well, a traditional publishing is, isn't it? Right, and that's why they do a terrible job. Yeah. <laughs> 
because no, their incentives uh, are to just sign as many books as as they can afford, throw shit against the wall, but see they what have works. An, they have an incentive for it to be good because they're participating not, in the no, upside. No, not not once they buy it. Because once Aren't they buy you it, less incentivized for it to be good if you're not participating in it. No. No, because you're just getting paid. It doesn't matter to you whether it's any good or not. Absolutely not. Because uh, uh, our business card is the quality of every book we put out. The way we get clients is because they see the quality of the prof- of the publishing. But fundamentally, you're a volume business. You you would be a vol- yeah because you're only going to make money in the number of books that come in. I don't think we are. No, seriously. It, actually, fundamentally, I think we're a customer service business. The way we've structured our business is fundamentally as a customer service business. And like, we want the author to come out the other side utterly delighted with interacting with us. Super proud of the book and excited about that. But like, also, like, man, it was so enjoyable to deal with them. Because if we do that, then we're going to get... Uh, I mean, every... Then we become Zappos, you know, and, and like if you can be a company where people love working with you, then um, you it's all upside. Like that's a that's a moat that other people can't cross, you know. Especially because you're right, we don't have proprietary patentable software yet, at least, right? So like we need to build a moat, and customer service builds brands in a way nothing else does. Mm-hmm. Whereas publishers, believe it or not, are not incentivized to make your book good. Here's why. It's, a, it's already a sunk cost. They've already spent the money in the advance. Every dollar they spend after this is actually a much riskier dollar because they don't know what's going to work, which is why what you always see is uh, they spend, they overspend on the advance, buyer's remorse, they spend nothing. If the book does well, then they try and throw money after it to make it work, which doesn't work either. Right, mm-hmm. their whole system is screwed up. Uh, the structure doesn't work, man. In a world where there's zero transaction cost information, it's actually the person creating the content who is the most valuable. Right? That's that's 21st century information based economy. 20th century resource based uh, industrial economy is totally different because um, there's only a certain number of books that can be produced. So the the scarcity is getting your book produced mm-hmm. creates entirely different business structure. That's why I said like we're trying to build the business structure that is for the 21st century, not 20th century. Right. So the key for you is systems for customer service and hiring the right people. Mm-hmm. And you're going to live and die. If we that. produce amazing books, regardless of the ideas in them, then we are going to have an amazing business. That's our that's our goal. Garbage in, garbage out. Amazing book, amazing book. Mm-hmm. Or amazing idea, amazing book. Like, that's it. Well, good luck to you, man. Thank you, brother. I think we did it. Yeah, that was a uh, that was Feel maybe the right? longest podcast I've ever been on. <laughs> How long did we go for? Uh, like, oh, dude, we're over two hours. Yeah, that was quite That's a while. Good, I've gone three before. No, that was fantastic yeah, though. That but, was uh, great. Thanks for doing it, man. I no, appreciate of course, it. Dude. Thank you for being patient. Yeah. So, um, what's that? I got to tell Zach where to pick me up. Uh, if you're digging on. Tucker, the best way to um, connect with you, what is that these days? Tucker Max, oh, bookinabox.com. Yeah, um, so uh, the best way to connect is, it, well, if you're interested in Book in a Box, just go to bookinabox.com, and then we have like a uh, like a little form. If you want to email me or something, it's just tuckermax at gmail. Mm-hmm. It's fine. I, like, I have Dude, a we could have email. a whole podcast about how you deal with email. <laughs> uh, it's not so bad anymore. Yeah. Uh, but may, I have a, uh, my secret is I just ignore it uh, unless it desperately needs a response. <laughs> I don't have a. I don't, I'm not. A, you I'm not, some like hack secret. No, dude. Email. Um, I'm not. I'm not. I wish I had some like fancy productivity technique. Uh, it's not. I just. I'm not. Uh, 
I wish I could be one of those productivity guys because I feel like I get a lot more done. It's just not the way my brain works. Like I try systems and processes and for me it always boils down to like what you have, writing right. shit down and yeah, keep yeah, it yeah. in front of me and focusing on what matters. It's hard to it's, I know. it's hard to take the there's lots of ideas around there, but actually implementing those is tricky. The, the, it rarely the, works with me. I still end up just writing everything in a moleskin and just taking notes on my so I iPhone and doing the best I can with email and like not beating myself up if I can't answer every one of them. Yep. And that's yeah. all you can do. Yeah. Things, right. Uh-huh. All right. So bookinthebox.com at Tucker Max on Twitter, TuckerMax.me. TuckerMax.me mm-hmm. is sort of like the new site I mean, that has newer stuff. Dude, you're easy to find. Uh, Google. Google so, works for me. All right. Yeah. Thanks for doing that. Thank you, man. All right. Peace. Lance. So that happened. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Let me know what you thought of the episode in the comments section on the episode page at richroll.com. Keep sending your questions in for future Q&A podcast to info at richroll.com. We're going to be recording one of these uh, in the next couple days. So fire them off, you guys. Let's hear from you. Uh, For all your plant power needs, visit richroll.com. We got nutrition products, books, education products. 100% 100% organic cotton garments. We got running tech tees. We got a meditation program. Basically, all kinds of stuff to help you take your health and your life to the next level, including our new cookbook, The Plant Power Way, and my memoir, Finding Ultra. You guys know about all this stuff. And if you're into online courses, I got two of those at mindbodygreen.com, The Ultimate Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition, three and a half hours of streaming video, and The Art of Living with purpose, which is all about goal setting and kind of doing the internal work. A lot of the stuff that we talked about on the show today to help kind of, you know, create the right trajectory for yourself and and set guideposts and and really tools and resources to help, you know, drive you forward with the best momentum on the best path possible for you. Thanks for supporting the show. Thanks for telling a friend. Thank you for sharing on social media. I love you guys for doing that. And of course, thank you for using the Amazon banner out at richworld.com for all your Amazon purchases. I'll see you guys in a few. Have a great week, everybody. I appreciate you sticking with me all the way to the end and look forward to another great episode next week. I'm out. Peace. Lance.